You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And I hope you all remain safe and healthy as we move into the Christmas holiday season. Now, my young friends with the Salad Podcast call their Patreon supporters croutons, which I like. Uh, But I haven't thought of a clever name for the supporters of this show um, yet. But it's time to give a shout out to our new Patreoner since the last episode. And here we go. We have uh, Mike Rochford, Joseph Thompson, Alex Crone. Matt Ratcliffe, Jeroen Spaybrook, Brian Hughes, Brandon Borassa, Josh Holbrook, and James McGee. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. I really appreciate it. And for the rest of you folks, if you'd like to contribute to keep the show rolling, uh, please go to patreon.com slash so much pingle. That's all one word. Okay, well, here we go with episode 27. And I hope you're all fond of long conversations because here's another uh, that runs just in excess of two hours. Now, for our last episode, we visited Australia. And for this show, we hop on over to Belgium. Our guest this week is Jeroen Spaybrook. And I hope he forgives me for any uh, mispronunciation of his name. Now, I've corresponded with Jeroen for a while. And so it was a real treat to have a long talk with him. And one of the things we have in common is our life listing. Uh, we, we like amphibians and reptiles, and we also enjoy keeping a list of all the species we have encountered in the field, like uh, some other field herpers and lots of birders. And our list numbers happen to be very close. So, And I'm kind of thinking now that I need to plan a show just on life listing for the future. But of course, Yaron uh, has many more irons in the fire, so to speak. And, and I was interested in learning more about his conservation research with fire salamanders. And I wanted to hear more about his field guide to the amphibians and reptiles of Britain and Europe. Now, in the time between recording and airing this episode, I got a copy of this book. And I got to tell you, folks, it's it's fantastic. And, of course, it got me all fired up to get over there and get some European herping in. Uh, There are photographs in this guide, but the real treasure is all the artwork that depicts each species. And... Jeroen refers to them as drawings in our discussion, but I think the term illustrations might be more appropriate. They're very similar to the artwork Roger Stebbins created for his Western Field Guide, if that helps uh, paint a picture for you. But at any rate, see the show notes for more information on the guide. And there's also a link there to Jeroen's field trip reports to uh, a lot of places around the world, which I also enjoy, and they get me fired up as well. And yeah, I should also mention there are a couple breaks in the interview, uh, thanks to some uh, service interrupts. But even so, I think it's a a freaking miracle that I can talk with people all all across the planet over the internet with uh, very few problems and most of the time. So let's get to my conversation with Jeroen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Today, it's my privilege to be speaking with Jeroen Spaybrook, 
from Ghent in the country of Belgium. Welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. So do I, uh, does everybody call you Jeroen or do they call you something else? Is it? Not really. Okay. All right. And uh, you are in uh, Ghent, which is G-H-E-N-T for our listening audience. And I'm happy to have you on the show. I, uh, you and I have uh, communicated with each other for, oh gosh, a few years now, I think. Maybe maybe even 10 years. I'm not sure. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. I think uh, the, first, uh, the first communication between us was uh, about um, uh, Peru. About yeah, that might very Perth well Peru. be. Yeah. So I brought you on the show today because, um, you know, I'm really interested in uh, pretty much everything that you're you're doing. <laughs> so I thought my listening audience would be as well. And uh, tell us a little bit about, um, well, first of all, you, you're uh, in Ghent. You have got a couple great kids that are uh, old enough now to get out into the the outdoors with you. Yeah. They're, they go out with you uh, day and night in the forest and whatnot. That's starting now, yes. Uh, so I have an eight-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter, and she's now just at the age that the long winter nights, it gets dark uh, early enough so she can still be in bed at a reasonable hour. <laughs> and they really like uh, fire salamanders, but who doesn't? So Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they enjoy going out with you and helping you with your fire, fire salamander project. Yeah, they do. Awesome. Awesome. So I think uh, let's bring it over to the fire salamander project. Now, you this is a uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a, a capture recapture project that you're doing. And give us uh, what uh, what's the project or what institution are you doing this uh, work for? Well, actually, it started as a hobby thing in 2008, but um, quite recently, the last couple of years, I've been able to. Um, turn it into a work thing as well. So I'm working for the Research Institute for Nature and Forest, which is in Brussels. And it's a bit of a special um, place to work as a researcher because it's not really linked to uh, academia. It's not a university. But um, the research we do has a strict link with policy and management of species, but also habitats. So the Flemish government, which is the northern Dutch-speaking part of uh, Belgium, where they are at, um, they want us to support their policy making for nature-related uh, stuff with uh, research. So one of these things is uh, herbs. And fire salamanders are one of these species because we have uh, an imminent threat of a fungal disease, cell, ah. and um it's very close to where we are, but we haven't had it in Flanders, so in the northern part of Belgium itself. It's in Germany, it's in the Netherlands, it's in the French-speaking uh, part of our country, Wallonia. So there's uh, quite a bit of concern about it, and that's why my hobby project kind of got a, a recycling life, so to speak. It became more um, valid or useful in the context of this uh, disease threat. So uh, what we've what I've been doing is going out into the woods, walking a fixed transect of about um, 1.4 kilometers. I'm not sure. I think that's less than a mile. And I'm walking this like by now I've done it 280 times, I think, over the last 10 or 12 years, something like that. Wow. And doing a capture mark recapture study. And the marking is quite e easy because... 
these salamanders have spots. So these spot patterns are quite unique. We've developed a little software program ourselves, which we called Mander Matcher. And in that we enter, um, we kind of turn this spot pattern into numbers. And these numbers give a code for each animal. And this code you can match with previous captures in order to sort out if this is an, an individual you've seen before or not. And by now I've done this for quite a bit of time. So just um, last week I crossed the barrier of uh, 20,000 records in the database. So that's not individual wow. salamanders, but... Individual observations? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. That's, that's about... Um, the young ones are a bit difficult because the pattern, the spot pattern of the young salamanders is not stable yet. They tend to lose a bit of the pigmentation uh, with age. It's not really like that because some parts of the body, like the toes, it's the opposite way around. The toes tend to get more yellow when they grow older, but the back and the dorsal parts of the tail, they lose the yellow. So until they are adult, like at um, about 14 centimeters, um, they um, still haven't reached kind of stability in that pattern. So rec recognizing them during the recapture process is a bit difficult. Hence the program. But after that, it works, and yeah. then um, we get about we get for sure a good idea about the adult animals. And over that uh, period of time, I've um, I've uh, caught about two thousand three hundred, I think, more or less, adult individual different uh, animals. Wow! And that's uh, straight away somewhat the most uh, fascinating thing about it to me. That these salamanders can reach in um, suitable habitat can reach uh, extremely high uh, densities. So, especially especially for you and your audience, I kind of uh, translated it into a number per acre because that's, I think, a surface unit that U.S. people uh, are more familiar with than hectares. Unfortunately, yes, that's true. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I did a little calculation, and it translates into about um, 550 salamanders per acre. Wow. And it's in a way, it's not really that new because uh, it's known that the, the biomass of salamanders in the U.S., like um, I think it's called redback salamander, uh -huh. these tiny ones, they can reach a biomass that is higher than any other vertebrate in the Appalachians or that type of habitat. But for Europe, it was quite, uh, it's quite novel. And I think the densities I'm encountering are quite close to what is known to be uh, the maximum values. That's amazing. Uh, when you do, you have principal times of the year that you you do your uh, your transect walk transect walks, or is is it through the year? Well, I or... started off to do it. Um, I try to do it three times each month. Now, where I'm at, the climate is quite uh, mild, so we don't get any severe uh, winters. We do get snow, but it's. Um, for instance, a lot of fire salamander literature stems from Germany, and their um, winter can last uh, four months of snow cover, and so all the salamander activity drops to uh, to zero. But here it's more or less year-round, and a lot of um, deposit, uh, larval deposit, depositing happens in, over winter because they don't have a egg phase. They go straight from... Um, it's actually the only salamander in the world that deposits larvae, so not eggs, 
and also not fully uh, uh, metamorphosed uh, juveniles. So I see. So they retain they retain the so they have the gills embryo and, until until they reach that yeah. stage. I yeah. see. So um, that there's a lot of um, uh, that activity still going on over the winter. And in the beginning, I tried to uh, sample or. Uh, do these counts every month, three times more or less. But uh, now I've, I took a little step back in a way because I know more or less in which months um, the most uh, are the most productive. Right. In the beginning, I wanted to establish also what the connection is between environmental variables like rain, humidity, things like that, and the level of activity. But now I kind of have enough data for that, so I decided to focus on other things, which means mainly trying to hit these evenings of mass activity so you get much more data out of much more individuals that are out and about. And if I recall, when I talked to you about coming on the show, you were very, you've been very busy the past few weeks. Yeah, so I actually didn't really answer your question yet when these peaks are. So um, autumn or fall, as you would call it in the U.S., is a very is, – is the – is the main peak. There's a little sub-peak, so to speak, that happens in uh, March, April. And then in between, from now until March, April, they keep being active. And the dead okay. zone is actually from June to August. Even if it's really humid, they don't care. They just refuse to come out because they have this uh, evolutionary adaptation to maybe not trusting uh, summer rains to be... Uh, as uh, productive enough to allow larval deposition and that stuff. But the last couple of uh, weeks, now it's a bit, has been uh, slowed down a little bit, which is normal. By like halfway into November, it uh, decreases a little bit. But starting from uh, September, we get all the main reproductive uh, activities happening. So we have mating at the start of these females from the previous mating period who uh, deposit their larvae which can go on throughout the winter. It's not really a very discreet uh, reproductive period. And also um, some combat between males, which, oh, wow. is, which is a big word for what it is, what it actually is. It's, um, it's like uh, two wannabe Komodo dragons wrestling each other. Um, <laughs> and also, as, at least where I'm at, if you disturb them, they break up quite uh, easily as well. They're uh -huh. like they feel shy or interrupted when you hit them with uh, the light of your uh, torch. I see. But yeah, autumn is the ticket. So if uh, the females are retaining the eggs until they reach an, uh, a larval stage. Yeah. And the, so are they using uh, stored sperm from pre the previous year or... Is yeah, there, they can. Uh, it's how does quite, that work? It's quite complex because, to be precise, I would have to mention that in other parts of their range, they, there's also uh, uh, a lot of populations who deposit fully developed young as well. Oh, really? Oh. That's in Spain. and um, But around here, that, as far as we know, never happens. So... Um, I think, like I said, the mating, everything that's related to mating or their entire year cycle is not really uh, fixed in time. So you have these explosive breeders in frogs and toads where everybody goes to the pond at the same time and, it, yeah. and in a week or so it's uh, finished. But in fire salamanders, it's more, yeah, you could call it opportunistic or spread out over time. So they, um, 
like I said, the, the larval deposition can happen from September until April, but that's not a single female. That's different females. They deposit them in two or three goes sometimes, not always one in uh, one go. But the the mating uh, action that precedes this, it's hard to tell because, in, in fact, they can uh, store sperm. And also they can retain these larvae, which are already in a quite advanced state of development, until uh, the rains start to hit. And that's been the case last um, season, so to speak. So they only started uh, depositing in um, at the end of January, which, which is really late, because September, October would be the time for them to start. And then... It's almost like they have a uh, a built-in coping mechanism because rains yeah, it gives can them vary some, from year to year. It gives them a little bit uh, more flexibility. If you would be stuck to having to deposit uh, the egg phase, the eggs might die while right. it gives a little bit of um, flexibility. But what we've been experiencing is over the last couple of years, extreme droughts. So um, the onset of rains in autumn um has been really late so I like i said when i said they started depositing in january that's something that actually should start in september october but that's hmm. been a problems like for i think the first really hot and dry year was uh, 2017 and that's been every consecutive year since has been the same so wow did you have a sense that they're kind of adapting or taking that into stride I don't know. Uh, the, one of the main reasons that I keep doing this uh, <laughs> this research is that I hope to have this fancy climate uh, change related uh, paper in the end, uh, so I yeah. can show a link between um, dry summers and reproductive success and things like that. But it's hard to tell. Maybe in a way, it's not the best species to test because they are quite long lived. They only become um, reproductively active at like five or six years of age. And then they can easily reach 20 years in um, in the wild. And in captivity, even there's cases where they reach 50 or... But that's... Wow. Those were very happy and well-fed and well-taken uh, care of <laughs> animals, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but, that's pretty uh, amazing. But yeah, it's difficult to, to get a... A clear um, uh, view of what the impact is of, of uh, extreme droughts. It might be easier to work with species that have a short generation time, like our tree frogs, where um, males are more or less uh, spent, so to say, in a year or two years of age. They did their duty and then they they die, most of them. But the advantage is long-living animals. You can do long time series of recapture, which is fun because... You can um, trace individual growth of them, which is yeah. Well, that, that leads me to uh, that leads me to a question: uh, Do you have uh, an individual or a number of individuals that you've captured many times? Well, yes. Um, there's one that is nearly hitting the ninety mark. So that's one that I caught the first time in March two thousand and eight, and. He's about at one third of the, the uh, times I go out to count him, he's he's out there, and he's wow. still, he's still looking very healthy. And he was already, I think, five or six years old when I caught him the first time. Wow, he was already so, a breeding male. So yeah, he must be eighteen years old, something like that now. 
That's Which amazing. Is, yeah, that's fascinating for a tiny animal in a way. It's still uh, a small vertebrate and much longer than a lot of other amphibian species. Wow. So I talked to my friend Steve Marks a couple episodes ago about, because he recaptured the same fox snake over and over and over again. And so it's kind of funny to hear. It's not just uh, not just snakes. You can do this with, with uh, ampistomatid salamanders as well. Yeah, actually, this it, this is not a... a Ambistomid. Oh, that's right. That's right. I'm it's sorry. Salamandrid salamander. <laughs> yeah, I beg your pardon. Uh, I, I just kind of lump them in there because they're, they look they look and behave so similar to our I know. ambistomatids. And maybe if we, when we move into uh, international herping for fun, that's something I uh, surely can uh, relate to or talk about as well because I have still some species to see in that ambistomid ah. uh, area because. Of course, they are. They have my interest because there are similarities and also yeah. differences. Yeah. So let me ask you about. Um, okay, uh, obviously, B cell is this terrible thing that we're all concerned about. And do you have protocols that you follow? I mean, do you, are you worried about bringing B cell into your population? You have to take some yeah. some uh, harsh steps to make sure that doesn't happen. It's really hard because um, the dispersal mechanisms of the fungus are not well known. But right. we, we do, as far as we can guess, it seems that uh, human dispersal, so humans acting as a vector by um, using uh, dirty boots or things like uh, that, uh, bringing them from one uh, forest patch to the other, that that's really a concern. So what we do is we disinfect with a quite generic uh, fungicide and virus-affecting uh, thing, um, we uh, also try to use different sets of boots. So, um, yeah, that's uh, that's what you can do. But it's really tough because the general public, people who just go uh, yeah. for a weekend to a place where there's B-cell and they go hiking there and they come back home. In theory, it's easily, um, the, the damage can be done quite easily. So for our uh, part, so for Flanders, we are... Um, Considering that it's rather a, a question of when rather than if, I mean, it's going to happen someday. We are we think that we will have a B cell outbreak as well. And I I don't know. What do you do? Is there an action plan for that? Or well, um, there's some general um, there's some surveillance um, going on. Uh, most of it is passive, which means the general public has a uh, email and a phone number they can reach out to when they find dead animals. But um, an action plan in terms of what um, the policy makers are going to do when it hits, I'm actually a bit concerned about how that will work out. We will have to wait and see because I'm I'm not really confident that they will have the audacity to decide to close down forests or something where there's an outbreak because there's a lot of people who will probably protest and say, why would you close down my dog walking area for a silly salamander? Yeah, we get that here too. So we'll have to see. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're, we're very concerned over here about it as well. Um, you know, given the num number of salamander species we have. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And the potential for just uh, decimation of, of all those species. So, um, and so it's a big concern for, a lot of people in a lot of places. It's um, the the action that the U.S. took was quite uh, decisive and 
uh, adequate to my mind, but um, we'll have to see. It's it's quite complicated because it's also fascinating how a lot of species die in lab experiments, while in nature it seems to mainly be a fire salamander thing for now, because we have native uh, newt species that uh, live in the same areas, and these um, die readily in lab experiments, but not so much in the wild, or at least not as not enough for us to notice. As far as uh, populations uh, affected by B-cell? You mean how many, or...? No, I mean, um, it, you're talking about B-cell-affected populations. They, they're uh, more rigorous in the wild. They're, they're no, surviving yeah. it, or...? No, it's just uh, it's strange that the other... Uh, Salamander or newt species, which in theory should die as as readily as fire salamanders from it, that they seem to oh, I see. somehow. Okay. But it's complicated because it has to do with how B cell attaches to the skin and how it, it is um, also affected by what we call a microbiotic biota living on the skin, who might c- consume uh, fungal spores and things like that. But I'm... Um, if we continue to talk about this, I will get out of my depth a little bit because I'm not a B-cell expert, but uh, okay. it's for sure something that we we yeah. are dealing with. And you're doing your part. Uh, so are you involved with uh, other programs and projects? Yeah. Um, the rest of uh, Herb work that I'm doing professionally is um, has two main um, teams, so to speak. One is uh, breeding programs and another is invasive species. So these breeding programs is um, the legal framework for it is the Habitat Directive, which is a a European Union thing, which is um, very useful because every member state has to implement this and has to draft uh, species protection programs for the species that are listed as um, protected species by that directive. And... um, some of them are in a, a terrible state, thanks to, which is irony, by the way, our uh, fantastic fragmented habitat. Yeah, We are in a part of Europe, which is, um, even by European standards, um, heavily populated, and uh, habitat fragmentation is a real issue. So that means that for uh, species like amphibians and reptiles, which who have um, quite low or poor dispersal capacity, local extinction translates into, um, is, is kind of a definite thing. They will never get back themselves. So that's why um, it took a while, I have to admit, to bend the minds in the direction of breeding programs because a lot of people said, nah, you just have to go, uh, if you properly manage your uh, nature areas, the species will bounce back and get there themselves. But now, Luckily, we've reached a point that people all realize that uh, if we don't do any breeding programs, if they're gone, they will stay gone forever. Right. They're not like birds. They just can't, you know, fly in and and repopulate the area. Exactly. It sounds super simple or silly, but the fact that they don't fly is a a big thing (laughs) against the dispersal for amphibians and reptiles. and. It's hard to explain what habitat fragmentation means because everybody knows the concept, but um, the severity of it is is it's quite big here. Long time ago, we had cities. Now all these cities are like um, interconnected by uh, houses and uh, roads. So 
the whole of Flanders is practically one big city. I see. So the species that we are dealing with are the the ones that are least uh, are in the worst shape because still despite this situation we still maintain that for species that are quite still widespread we'd rather not do a breeding program because we don't want to end up advocating breeding programs for any species but for the the two species that we're dealing uh, with right now is uh, the first one is common spadefoot toad which is quite uh, similar to some us species at least to me they have these spades which allow them to dig uh, in to go in reverse and dig themselves in into loose soil and big bulging eyes and a bit of a plump uh, body. What's the genus on that? Pelobates fuscus. So, yeah, my okay. pronunciation of these names is also a bit different than native English speakers. Uh, I I got it, though. <laughs> <laughs> over, over here, we'd probably say pelobates or pelobates. Yes, probably. Uh, yeah. They used to be, I think, in the same family as uh, Scafiophis, the spadefoots that you have, and Spea or... Spia, you would say, probably. Mm, I say Spia. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think uh, nowadays they've this, these, uh, there's been a taxonomic change. They split it at the family level. So, um, But they are quite similar. They, they are in a bad shape because they um, need something that is quite uh, difficult to have, which is a nutrient-poor lamped uh, habitat, terrestrial habitat, and a quite nutrient-rich uh, pond to breed in. Ah. And that's a combination that usually was present in uh, river valleys because these ponds would fill up with water in the uh, winter, which is at, at the time of year where there's not too much um, fish yet. So that brings me to another issue. Like I said, the second team in in my work is invasive species. We have a lot of trouble with non-native fish uh, species, ah. which is, of course, not uh, surprising because it's a, a global issue, I guess. It is. So um, these spadefoot toads, they have um, larvae who can get really big, up to 14 centimeters. They're yeah, more or less like bullfrog uh, tadpoles. And that means that they have, um, in comparison to the other native species of frogs and toads, a much longer uh, aquatic phase. That means that they are, this period of time that they're subject to aquatic predation is longer. I see. And together, along with that, they also have a very sensitive um, skin. So there's this, there's one fish... I regret that I didn't look it up, its name in English, before we started. But um, it's a little invasive species, and it's, it um, has the tendency to bite tadpoles, to nibble at them, in a oh. way. And just by doing that, it for most other tadpoles, this might not have lethal effects. But for these big, thin-skinned um, spadefoot tadpoles, it, this can alone can be enough to... Uh, to not survive uh, this encounter with these fish. I see. So that's a big uh, problem because these fish are everywhere. And we try to, um, yeah, we try to manage the, enough uh, fish-free ponds, and also try to use uh, in kind of um, cascade systems where we have um, a fish breeding historically fish breeding ponds where we use uh, filter uh, cascades to keep the fish out which is a bit of an imperfect system because there's always some that will get through. But if you yeah. repeat this um, drying of these um, systems at a yearly basis, 
you can uh, maintain decent amphibian populations, but it's a lot of work. And if you drop the ball for a year, it can devastate your entire effort of all the years before, I especially see. for um, species that have short that are short-lived, like these tree frogs. I said I mentioned before they have uh, they coexist with these spadefoot toads, which is a bit of a a problem because um, well, it's a fun problem. The the tree frogs are so numerous and so loud that it's very hard for us to do um, counts of calling spadefoot toads oh, because the 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 chorus of the tree frogs is, is deafening. You can yeah. hear them at uh, yeah more than a mile away, and these spadefoot toads they only call. That's quite different than those ones that I was had the privilege of. Uh, Hearing and seeing calling in Florida, um, the hours they call only from underneath the water. They sit on the bottom of the water, and the sound they make is just something like crook, 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 which is it's a very uh, quiet. And then I see, I see your of, problem. <laughs> on top of that, you have a couple of thousands of tree frogs going. Kaka, kaka, kaka. Yeah. So um, we try to adapt and use this aquatic uh, microphones. So. Oh. Yeah. which is like a, an ear underwater, but um, it's not that easy still. And they are cryptic in their terrestrial, in their land life as well. So it's hard to get an idea about how many there are, but we are quite sure that there is not that many left. So we tried to breed them. We had a first year now, which was quite uh, successful. We um, were able to um, release about 12,000 large tadpoles which is, of course, by itself a number that doesn't say uh, much. But for our budget and our uh, goals, this was uh, we were really happy with that result. Mm -hmm. So we hope to uh, populate many areas where they used to be, but also think out of the box a little bit. And not. it's quite important to me when you do breeding programs that you don't um, get stuck on places they used to be, these species. By which I mean... Um, if there's a, another place that is outside their natural historical range, which is um, much easier to get back into shape with less costs and less time and less management efforts, I don't really mind to uh, go for that option instead of clinging on to what used to be and what may cost way more or maybe much more difficult to get back into uh, the habitat um, features that these species need. I see, yeah. So that's, uh, but we have some debates about that. Not everybody's on the same page about that. Also, when we talk about um, whether or not to mix uh, populations, uh, I mean, origin of different breeding stocks, if you want to have genetic diversity. Oh. We have yeah. to get everybody along. It's really important that uh, everybody involved, the public, the, the people who pay us for this, the Flemish government, that everybody is on the same page. So that's uh, the spadefoot, and there's another one that's the common midwife toad. That's Alites obstetricans, which, uh, which I think obstetrician is a word in English, no? Yes, yes. So uh, it, I think it means midwife, more or less? Yeah, more or less, yeah. But um, it's actually, it should rather, they should rather call it mid-husband or something, because it's the male who does uh, the parental <laughs> care. So um, after mating, these males, these uh, small uh, toads, they carry an egg uh, strand or a string around their hind legs, and they only um, they try they care for it. They keep it moist, and um, 
by the time they're ready to hatch, the male goes to the pond and then the tadpoles come out. So mm. that's also a species that it's not doing uh, very well. And there we are, again run into some invasive species problems because we have uh, water frogs of the genus uh, Pelophylax, which is, yeah, they look a lot like leopard frogs and things mm -hmm. like that from the US. But um, there's a non-native species from the Middle East who are replacing our native species and they like uh, to snack on anything that leaves a pond. So they are in this pond and they sit on the banks and when these uh, midwife toad tad uh, tadpoles turn into toadlets, they jump out of the water and they get snatched, uh, eaten uh, <laughs> immediately. So, um, so you have to have a mitigation program for the was it pel yeah. pel pelophylax? Yes. Well, it's uh, it's not easy. We ha we are, but it's, we have to do it because otherwise we are doing a fancy breeding program to have. Uh, you're just to, feeding other frogs to feed uh, invasive species, and that's yeah. not really the the goal. Right. Okay, but I think I talked a lot about work <laughs> stuff now already. <laughs> you did, but it's it's fascinating. It's disheartening that you guys have the same problems we have yeah. with these uh, invasive species. And you know, of course, for uh, the folks that live in the Western United States, it's the stinking bullfrog, you know, which yeah. is moved in and it just sort of you know crowds everything out and so people have to go in and remove the bullfrogs uh in order for the other species to you know come back and we, we and have them as well but uh, to my mind in our situation they're not the main issue because they tend to coexist they tend to live in in like low uh quality habitats they oh. are usually in permanent ponds which are used for uh, uh recreational fishing which have also invasive fish species. And yeah, they don't really do well in a lot of the places where the, the threatened or more sensitive amphibian species are because they cannot cope with, uh, at least I think that's different in the US, but they cannot cope around here with um, ponds drying up every year because ah. their larval cycle has to take two years here. But I'm imagining that in California, I, I remember seeing them in shallow little uh, uh brooks or torrents i don't know what you would call those yeah in desert-like environments so i'm imagining that their development goes way faster there and they can finish uh yeah year or less uh yeah it depends on um where uh, what the climate is you know further yeah. north they typically require two years i think but i think All further right. south where it's warmer yeah. they can get it done in one uh i may be wrong on that but i think that's true for most yeah, well, luckily around here they uh they cannot do their thing in uh, non-permanent water okay well let's let's shift this over a little bit to um another interesting topic and that is where else have you been in the world looking for amphibians and reptiles well uh a lot of places uh... <laughs> well let me ask you this before we get into that what really drives you is it amphibians or reptiles is it frogs is it snakes what is there something in there that that get most of your attention um well if it, it differs a bit between professionally and around here and what i do on trips but if it's yeah. about herping trips my um obsession is with long species lists <laughs> and then yeah. at the second the second thing is um iconic species ah. so i love to go any place where i can 
by now because I started with doing many years of European herping to get to the end of the European species list, which I managed to do about um, eight years ago. But then they kept splitting things, so <laughs> I still have some work to do. I think one or two species. So it started there. But um, now I any place where I can get um, more than 100 species that I've never seen before, for which you guys would use the word lifers. I don't really like that word. Sorry. Ah, that's okay. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> what, what do you have a do you have a different word for it or? No, it's hard to find something that's as short as uh, lifers. But to me, it sounds so disrespectful. <laughs> <laughs> it's like oh, it's just one of the list, and because it that sounds a, a bit of a contradiction because it I'm, I'm starting off by saying I want to see long lists of new species, but. Um, it doesn't mean that it's just one after the other, and uh, I don't. I can still thoroughly enjoy to see things again and again, which is uh, exemplified by my fire salamander craziness, of course. Uh, I I, I completely understand where you're coming from, because I I'm the same way. I like to go to some new place and see everything it has, and I keep a list, and uh-huh. I enjoy the list. Helps me to keep track of what I've seen. Um, it helps me keep track of taxonomy changes and things like that. And it's just, yeah. and I'm a list guy. I like making lists. So um, yeah. it all, it all works together, but I, I get where you're coming from. You want to, you, you're just not making a check mark and moving on. Right. And some people do that with birds, right? They make a little check mark. They, yeah, they see so, it from their car and then they, they, they never see it again. Yeah. I mean, it, it, of course, it depends a little bit on how attractive looking these things are. Uh, there's a difference between uh, Pristimanti species number uh, 5,000 or um, yeah, something really colorful or big or a Bushmaster or whatever. Oops. Uh, we had a brief internet outage here, and sometimes it's difficult to maintain continuity. And pretend nothing happened, so hopefully you can pick this up as it continues. Sorry for the sound effect, but did you really want to hear that old vinyl record scratch cliche? Uh, I didn't. Well, anyway, here we go. So when, I, um, when I'm traveling, I like to um, focus on two things. It's like the first thing is I love lists. So I'm big on going to places where I can see a lot of new species or at least ones that are new to me. And the second thing is, um, of course, like for anybody, I think it, I love to see uh, iconic species. And these lists um, made me, by now, I, t- I just hit in last year before we got the pandemic, I just reached the 1000 species mark. So this year I was able to add absolutely zero lifers. So oh. I'm at, still at 1,009 species. <laughs> oh, but yes, I'm. Uh, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I'm a list I understand. geek. <laughs> I'm a list geek for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's that's kind of hard, especially when you. That's kind of how you plan things. You plan your trips. You you know you do all this planning to go see things, and all of a sudden that just gets cut short. So. Yeah, well, it hasn't been too bad because I really enjoy my job. Because uh, I, as you could tell, I, I I don't I cannot shut up about it. So uh, <laughs> I used to work on other. I was working as a biologist before that as well. But I used to work on other subjects which were in line with the PhD thing that I did, and which were not uh, herb related. 
So I'm still, I'm really uh, loving doing that. And I was still allowed to still go out and do field work while the rest of the people were in lockdown. So it was a treat to have empty highways. But um, yeah, I don't mind too much. I have, I'm patient enough to wait until it blows over and I'm sure yeah. it won't take that much longer anymore. And there's still well, so much to look back back uh, on as well from the past. I'm a bit of a nostalgic as well. I often look back on my own trip reports. So that's kind of a diary kind of thing, I think, to fix the memories. And um, I think these trip reports, I, I do it just as much for myself as for other people to read them. Right, right. But, it helps yeah. you, helps keep your uh, your facts straight and your yeah. days and dates and what you did. It keeps yeah, all that exactly. stuff straight. Because yeah. otherwise it would have been, oh, in what year was that? In which country? I don't remember. Yeah. Especially after a couple of decades, it's like that. But yeah. for me, it started in, in Europe because I wanted to finish the European species list. So I did in about um, 15 years plus 50 trips. We don't have that many species in Europe as in the US. And then my first more um, officially dedicated herping trips outside of Europe were to the US. The first was California. And that was... Um, because uh, my um, ex-girlfriend uh, then, she um, wanted to see big trees. Ah. And that's where they're at. So, And I, I was really very ignorant about herping outside of Europe at that time. That was in 2011, so not that long ago. And we were going in July, which is not the best time of year. So I was expecting practically nothing, but still, um, if I, I could... Uh, on the side, do some herping on the side and found quite a bit of species and got really um, uh, in love. I became in love with the, the vast, uh, wide open desert landscapes of uh, the Western US. Yeah. So the next trip was Arizona a year after that. I was with herping buddies and then we, uh, yeah, we hit it hard, I think you could say. We tried to find as many species as we could. Some we missed, like I, I think I heard from your um, previous episodes that you also still have to see a twin-spotted rattlesnake. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, to me, not not really the most attractive species because it looks like one of the most um, nondescript species in Europe. But still, uh, that was one still there. But, um, yeah, for me, it was the, the Gila monster was uh, the uh. number one. And that's, that's where the iconic species come in. Yeah, because I had so I had wrong ideas about that species as well. I thought it was, I mean, you read in the books they spent this or that percentage of their uh, time underground, so I it, it read like you have to be uh, super lucky to find one uh, active and out and about. So when that happened, it kind of took a long time because we 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 did that uh, Arizona trip in um, at least trying to hit the monsoon season in the second half of September. But um, it was kind of late already. The, the, yeah. night, the night temperatures were dropping a little bit too fast um, to our liking. And took us, I think, uh, into the second week of the trip before we found that uh, Gila monster. But for sure, by then we had seen a lot of other um, fantastic species, of course. Yeah. And then, it's funny that you talk about, you know, you can read about a herb. You can read all the books about the herb. Mm -hmm. And then you go and see it, and it's different. 
Absolutely. In that case, it was really different because yeah. uh, especially how you move from uh, enigmatic, uh, mysterious things from nature shows on TV to learning a little bit and then finding out, huh, this is actually doable. Uh, it's it's something, yes. Sometimes it's even easy uh, for some species, surprisingly. Um, but uh, yeah, like thorny, finding a thorny devil in Australia, that was something that happened last year. Oh, wow. And that seems like uh, <laughs> maybe I, it's too, um, uh, not a, a right to call it easy, but it's kind of doable. You have to, some people have luck, others have bad luck, but it's not, uh, it's not a, a super once in a million years uh, kind of thing to find. So if you, you have to go at the right time of year, right? I yeah. Think that's part of it. Yeah. But sometimes it can still, you can still have bad luck because yeah, you never know. And this Australia trip we did last year was actually not so easy because it was after a, a year without rain. Oh. So it was, um, we found like some monitor species. The first specimens with individuals we found were dead in uh, rock uh, cracks sometimes oh. because they just went in there and uh, never got out again. Oh. Some of them in really the still uh, living, alive ones in really poor uh, shape. So, um, it was hard, but yeah, that thorny devil thing that was, I think, from since uh, childhood, at least in the top five. Yeah. Of, uh, and it's it's unimaginably cute. You can just hold it in your hand. The spines are really, I mean, this that that real weird growth and its neck is not really uh, fixed. It's a little bit. You can like how to say that, move it around a little bit. Ah, a little but, flexible. But the spines themselves, if you would squeeze uh, on tight, you would um, you, you would puncture your skin and have some uh, wounds for sure. So oh, okay. It's a, but it's it was uh, incredible. It was really uh, a childhood dream come true. To use a cliche <laughs> term. Hey, yeah, and there's uh, plenty of people that are listening to this podcast that that uh, would love to have that experience. Um, like you say, it's an iconic animal and. Uh, it's uh, hard to find people who would not want to see one, you know, yeah. <laughs> including me. But uh, I guess the other part of that is even if you go there and you don't see one, you're still in Australia. Yeah, well, I so. have some I have some friends, uh, uh, a very dear uh, French uh, friend of mine, a professional photographer and a great herper. And he did a trip by himself to Australia all alone. And he drove, I don't know, uh, thousands, I think 8,000 or more kilometers and he really had this uh, thorny devil fixed into his brain, so he got really frustrated. And I think it doesn't help to be there all by yourself as well. But um, to me, um, f as, f as far as I've um, done um, global herping trips, Australia was the most, um, um, how to say this, uh, different than other places. Like if you move from Europe to the US, there's some similarities. If you move from um, the Neotropics to Southeast Asia, there are some similarities. Yes. But Australia is is strange. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> There's some, um, for instance, I uh, maybe it's due to my ignorance, but uh, it, it even translates into techniques that I think are only used over there, like raking as a technique to um, dig up or rake up uh, skinks. Ah. Because they have a huge uh, number of skink species, and 
by raking through uh, old piles of uh, dead vegetation, which have some moisture underneath them and are uh, in the specific. I, I I must admit I don't I cannot really describe what makes the specific best place to start herb raking, but that was completely new to me. I, that was a technique that I've never seen before. Although I guess some people do it for fossorial snakes in the tropics or maybe. Um, some salamanders even, but there it's a real thing. So herpers go hmm. out and have a rake in the trunk of their car. Yeah, we have a little bit of that in the, in the United States for All right. uh, for some of our um, legless lizards and things ah, like okay. that in California and Florida. I didn't know, so yeah, I'm learning but, something. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but yet, that's a minor thing. That's not yeah. not a, a widespread technique across our con- our our country either. So yeah, yeah, well. Uh, it, it may sound disrespectful, but in general, the herbs of Australia are, um, color-wise, not the most attra- attractive um, species to my mind, to my taste, because it's a lot of shades of brown and orange and gray. Also, in all these uh, highly venomous snake species, it's mainly those colors that pop up. Uh-huh. So for me, it was the thorny devil and the green tree python. Oh, so I squeezed that in as well, which was a bit crazy to do in one trip, but uh, it yeah. worked out. And the thorny devil thing I did together with an um, uh, Australian uh, herb tour operator, Australian Wildlife Encounters, which is fantastic. Uh, I would recommend anyone to go with them. They do it in small groups, and uh, the guides really go out of their way to give you anything you desire in terms of finding species. But ah. then I, I went off to Cape York, the tropical area in the Northeast, all by myself, and that made it extra special. Although it's really weird to find a green tree python and having nobody to share the joy with <laughs> in the middle of the night. <laughs> I, okay, I understand that, yeah. But yeah, it was um, that was very special. And I've especially now with this pandemic year, I've been thinking about uh, Australia a lot. Some uh, nostalgia, even though it's only a year ago, although it feels much, <laughs> much more. Yeah. Australia for me has always been a matter of economics because for what it would cost me to go to Australia, I could go to two or three other cool places I haven't been to yet. And is that uh, because you want to have these long lists as well? <laughs> is that the economics of how <laughs> how can I get a long list with yeah, the minimum yeah. uh, Amount of money? Yeah, it has something to do with it, right? I mean, I yeah. you know I have only so many years left to travel hard, but so... that's exactly why, Mike, you should get a thorny devil. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't argue with you. <laughs> well, it's true. It's it's yeah. uh, it's not easy to get to. I imagine um, it's even further from where I am to fly there. I don't know. At least everybody around here always says that if you would uh, dig through the center of the earth, you would end up in New Zealand. So ah. <laughs> it's far, but um, it's it's really it. Like I said, it's most it feels most like herping on a different planet than any other place I've been to. So it's really worth it. I'll get there someday. It won't be next year, but I'll get there someday. Also, these uh, pythons. I really love um, these big snakes. And they are way less um, bitey or aggressive than their <laughs> their counterparts in the neotropics. So, yeah, um, yeah it's really fascinating. But, um, yeah, in, in a way, a lot of the 
after the US, my horizon was broadened to a place you know very well in, in Peru. Eh? Yeah. And that started off, actually, that's a bit weird how I ended up going to Peru as my first tropical um, adventure, because the thing I had in my mind was I wanted to see a leatherback uh, sea turtle. Oh. And then I ended up in, in the Amazon in Peru, which is, makes no <laughs> it, sense yeah. at all. <laughs> but I was thinking, okay, leatherbacks, let's see, where can you get them? Um, South America. And then I was browsing the field herping forum, and I ended up seeing Matt Cage's uh, photo mm. uh, series of the Iquitos-centered uh, uh, the trips you are uh, hosting as well. Um, then, because I think... Our, of the time window we had available, it, we didn't go with a trip that you are regularly running, but we got a customized uh, trip. Yeah. And um, yeah, since then, um, the Neotropics are really among my favorite uh, places in the world to herp because, like I said, I'm a list junkie, so there's a lot of species. And these, I remember these first nights there that you're hiking a trail and it felt like every frog you found was a different species than the one before and that kind of diversity is really mind-blowing yeah especially to someone who walks in a forest and only sees fire salamanders <laughs> it takes a bit of um getting used to when i get back home because the first time i do these salamander uh, counts i'm still in uh, tropical mode and i still imagine <laughs> that there's snakes and tree frogs and all that kind of Gorgeous yeah. stuff that's not around. <laughs> Are you still which, looking up up in the branches and stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah. These shapes, and then uh, for like half a second, you get you f get fooled. Yeah. But um, what mainly makes the neotropics stand out to me, like for instance, in in contrast to um, Southeast Asia, is the colors in the frogs, because like in terms of snakes, I would say it's about. Yeah, it's about um, both have their iconic stuff. You have bushmasters in South America. You have blue coral snakes in Southeast Asia. Yeah, I mean they both have fancy, fancy, uh, beautiful snakes. But uh, Southeast Asia, the frogs, uh, apart from Hakophorus, uh, these gliders, like Wallace's flying tree frog. Oh yeah. The rest of them is quite boring to my mind there's a lot of brown stuff and in the neotropics especially in these um, again the eye-opening experience to be in peru you in at um, i think it's santa cruz the lodge where there's this pond where you find this um, where you yeah. find the bushmasters that's that's the name of the place right santa yes. cruz santa cruz field station yeah well uh, just going out the first night and seeing all these um, clown tree frogs these colors and yeah, that's that's just amazing. And then even in daytime, you have um, uh, poison frogs uh, hopping uh, about. Yep. All these colors, and it's the same in in uh, Costa Rica as well. You also have much more color in the frogs than in Southeast Asia. So that's why I fell in love with the neotropics, and it's still there. The love. <laughs> I I understand that completely, and uh, there's so much. There's just so much. I mean, in terms of frogs, well, snakes too, and lizards, but there's so many uh, colorful frog species from South yeah. Amazon Basin up into Central America. Uh, it's just an amazing number of species that you could, yeah. you could see. I, I actually, I, I, I didn't really figure out if there's a kind of evolutionary explanation for why 
the colors are less uh, striking in um, Asian uh, jungles? I don't really know. I don't know. Because a lot of these snakes have, uh, what's it called again? I want to say parallel evolution, but that's not the right word. Oh, convergence. Convergence, yes. Yeah. Uh, but it seems that it didn't really happen the same way for the frogs. No. Uh, I mean, you know, some things, some things pop up in both places, like, uh, you know, like horn-like appendages and yeah, yeah, yeah. and things like that. But, uh, uh, you know, Asia got, you know, gliding frogs that uh, the neotropics don't really have the, the, the big frogs that have turned their hands into, you know, sailplanes. A little, a little bit. Um, uh, Cruziohila, a little bit. Eh? Ah, yeah, yeah, a little bit, yeah. But, but uh, not, not to the same extent. Not much, no, indeed. Yeah. But yeah, you have so much. You have these, um, uh, what's that called in English again? Uh, Philomedusa, these... Um, yes. Monkey yeah, tree no. frog, is that the word? Yeah, monkey frogs, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, these big ones, uh, bicolor. Right, right, yeah. I, I had no idea that they walk like a chameleon, so because <laughs> I have to admit, I, I've never really kept uh, herbs at home, so... I don't have any idea about how, what kind of behavior all these species have be- prior to uh, meeting them in the wild. So I had no idea. I thought they would leap like any frog, but no. really fascinating. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I enjoy seeing uh, bicolor or bicolor or what do you want to call it. Every year I go down, every year I get to see those frogs. And I just enjoy it because yeah. they're just, they're so, um, it's the extreme, right? It's, it's as, maybe as big as a frog could get and still climb around in, in trees yeah, and things yeah, yeah. and uh they're beautiful and they have a, a great call you always know when they're around uh, because they have that singular note that's very loud Wrong. and yeah <laughs> exactly like yeah i think you guys yeah. see um like tr- the transcription you guys give is bob or something yeah but to my yeah. mind they were just saying i'm a frog <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. they also have that kind of air of n- not being uh, overly uh, intelligent <laughs> to my mind, <laughs> which is like uh, anthropomorphizing uh, these frogs, which I should never, yeah. no one should ever do. But yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one of the best things that uh, and, and Devin, uh, the, well, the guy that runs Project Amazonas, one of the best things I think he did was put the. Uh, that lagoon in there, we basically yeah, right, dam- yeah. dammed a small creek, and that just brought in frog species. Like it's it's fascinating, really fascinating, because it kind of shows that that type of habitat seems to be rare in in the yeah. forest environment. Yeah, uh, and if you want to, if if you want to come to the Amazon and see a bunch of frogs, you know, there's no better environment for that because they're they're all right there waiting for you, and they're all yeah, yeah it's really convenient. Walk around the, yeah. Walk around the perimeter of the of the pond or lagoon or whatever we want to call it, and just don't forget about boat hops. <laughs> yes, and uh, also um, Micrurus surinamensis, the uh, yeah, aquatic yeah, coral, aquatic. quite a yeah. quite a few of those. So, yeah, actually, snake wise, it was not the best. Um, I mean, it was it was fantastic. We had a bushmaster. We had this um, oh, what's it called again? This uh, green tree viper. Oh yeah, both Bothrops uh Belleniatus. Yeah, I don't think it's Bothrops, right? Oh, it was uh, it was in Bothriatus. Maybe, maybe it's again Bothrops now. Yeah, I don't know. 
It's back in both rooms. Never mind. We know <laughs> we know what we're talking about. So yeah. we had some really beautiful species, but um, if I compared with the trips you guys are doing, um, I think um, that time of year is not maybe not that great, or maybe not the best. Let's say for snakes, it was in July. I think we went. Yeah, it's a little drier then. Yeah. Well, you were lucky to get a bushmaster, so that's good. Absolutely, and that was uh, actually. There's a Belgian um, birder who um, is, or at least was, quite famous for his um, CDs back in the day when people still uh, bought CDs, uh, recordings of birds' song from all around the world. And he got into a, it was as well in Peru, but in the south, he got bitten by a Bushmaster and lost a leg to that oh accident. Oh my. And when we saw uh, our. Um, Bushmaster, I understood because it was just curled up in the middle of the trail. So if you would have this stupid idea to say, oh, let's take soak in the entire um, atmosphere by switching off our torches and hiking in the dark for a while, that's really not a good idea. No. <laughs> because it's like nature's, I would want to say little landmine, but it's not little at all. No. <laughs> it's just coiled up there. Yeah. Uh, and we find a number of them that just like that. Yeah. coiled up next to the trail because it's not just people that use the trail so yeah it's fascinating other than that i mean i guess it could go wrong if you step on it and yeah if you're a birder you're not really that focused on what's happening on the ground yeah, you're looking up yeah yeah other than that it was a, like everybody i think agrees it's really a gentle creature a bushmaster it at least this one was yeah um they seem to be calmer during the day than at ah, night okay yeah. Um, in my experience, that that seems to be the case with that. Okay. Yeah, I've only seen one, so my experience is really limited. Yeah. Um, and what do they do when they are not calm? How would you describe that? Well, it's it's kind of funny. People, of course, make much more of this than or blow everything out of proportion, if you will. But uh, they generally try to get away. That's yeah. They're it's just like. Uh, you know, when people encounter rattlesnakes, most of the time the rattlesnake just wants to get away. They don't, yeah. you know, they don't come after you or anything. And the Bushmaster is the same way. It, when, you know, we, um, when we find them, um, you have people taking pictures of them and, and we obviously we try to respect the animal and, and uh, you know, take care of it and make sure it's not overly stressed and stuff. But uh, yeah. during that time, they're, they're just trying to, to get away. And a, a, a seven foot Bushmaster can get away really quick. Uh, really? They move. Okay. They can move pretty quick ah, okay. when they when they want to. Um, but I mean, to be honest with you, the, the the snakes that worry me the most there are are the fertile ants, the lanceheads. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, they're a lot more. I would say they're a lot more unpredictable. They yeah. are quick. They're very fast. Uh, they you know, can do a lunging a lunging strike at you and things like that. So I I tend to not mess with those things yeah, at yeah. all. I like taking pictures of them. I like seeing them, but uh, they're, they're to me they're they're really quick, they're really yeah. large, and they're just as you know venomous as a bushmaster in my mind in terms of yeah. and the large fangs. Yeah, yeah, big head, large fangs, big venom glands. So okay, but it's really interesting that these bushmasters can be fast because to me it sounded like a, a boa kind of uh, speed that they are just slowly leaving the scene. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, for the most part, they 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 can do that, but when they want to go, they can be quick. They can okay. be 
they can move. So I try to remember, I try to remember that when, yeah, we, yeah, yeah. when we encounter them. It's like, okay, this thing is, I, I can't fall into a sense of complacency about how they're going to behave. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not really a big uh, daredevil when it comes to handling uh, venomous snakes. Mm-hmm. I guess it's also, um, I, I'm actually quite sure that it's different if you grow up in the U S and it, definitely if you grow up in Australia, it's more of um, a thing that you get um, e- more readily in touch with while growing up. Yes. Because, because um, I don't have this cute origin story that everybody has. I was catching uh, uh, garter snakes in the yard when I was a kid <laughs> because there were no snakes. So, um, But um, that's, uh, I guess, one of the reasons why I, I, I don't mind ev- anybody else doing the handling and... Um, somebody who has more experience with it. And in Peru, we had Edwin, who was a, a one-in-a-kind uh, herping guy to my mind. He grabs anything. He sees everything while I'm stumbling over my own feet, trying to get uh, even a small frog. He is uh, as quick as anyone could be. Uh, I've, I've never met anyone as tuned into herps as Edwin. Yeah, it's 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 special, right? Because yeah. I even there's a Swiss uh, guy I know who even uh, uh, looked into um, ways of getting to uh, take Edwin along to go herping in other places of the world <laughs> to to <laughs> paying for his trips because he said this guy is really something else, and this is this is a person who had really a lot of experience so um, with herb guides and herping everywhere in the world. But yeah, that was really, I mean, for me, this was added to the magical um, experience that first tropical trip was the place, the species, and then this, because actually I have to admit before that I was not really um, anxious of getting herping guides because I actually went to Costa Rica a long time after that, but by... um, from hearing stories from people from going to Costa Rica, there everybody kind of, if you ask them, says they are a very good herping guide, while um, it's not always true. So to end up in Peru for the first time, tropical environment with this guy was, was <laughs> uh, very, very surreal. It's like, how is yeah. this possible? He sees all these things. He catches them also uh, as quick as anything. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I look forward to going back to Peru every year is to to hang out with uh, Edvin and uh, Emerson and some of the other wow. guys on our crew. They're they're very good, and uh, uh, I don't. Edvin doesn't have much English, and I don't have much Spanish, but we 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 tend to communicate okay, and we have we have a pretty good time together. Yeah, um, yeah. He's he's really easygoing and. It works somehow, even with few words of each other's language. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will tell one Edwin story, Edwin story, and I'll, and then uh, uh-huh. I'll move on. But uh, uh, one of my my second trip down there, I'm out at night with with him, and uh, we're walking along, and he stops and he looks down and he looks at me and he says, "Run," and then he takes off running. And I'm like, <laughs> "What? Okay." So I t- I take off running. <laughs> and I'm 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 running behind him, and he runs about uh, I don't know 100 150 maybe you know maybe 150 feet or so, and then he stops, and I catch up to him, and I'm like looking at him like what, <laughs> and he looks at me and he says, "Ants," 
And <laughs> apparently, we had walked into a, a a stream of these really small ants that crawl up your rubber boots and get inside, and then uh-huh. they just bite the bite the heck out of you. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And we had we had walked into a huge <laughs> nest of them, and uh, the these are the little guys that really they're real painful. And uh, yeah. so I, I learned a valuable lesson when Edwin says run. <laughs> you run. Um, you had a good reason for it. So okay, I remember from that trip a lot of mud and uh, uh, yeah. wet feet uh, kind of uh, trail uh, situation. So we saw way more ants in Costa Rica. But again, that may be also because it was we had a, quite a dry trip in Costa Rica. Uh-huh. But yeah, um, really, I could talk about Edwin for a, a long time. It's really <laughs> it's a it's a very uh, unique uh, kind of uh, talent that he has developed and and just without any um i, I don't want to w- use the word proper education i mean formal education right. uh, nobody uh, he he just picked it up from american uh, herpes uh getting coming there and uh, copying a little bit of behavior and then yeah because he's there all the time perfecting yeah. it he taught me how to find cruzio hyla uh-huh. Yeah, the, the tree frog that we've talked about. He taught me to, to listen for it because it has a very quiet little call. It just it's a one note call. It just goes, whack, <laughs> whack, just a little whack, <laughs> and you have to listen for it. But when you hear it, you can find that frog. Uh-huh. So, and uh, you know, so he, well, I'm out, again, I'm out with him in the middle of the forest, and he's like, points to his ear, whack. And then he's like, ah, Cruzio Hila. <laughs> so, and, we, and we found it. And, and so wow. uh, on a subsequent trip, I found one by listening for that little whack call. And uh, so I was like, thank you, Edwin. You know, you, you're like. So how do you get it down? <laughs> That's another question. <laughs> Sometimes you can't get them down. They're way up in the tree. But yeah. uh, I've seen a few of them, you know eight or nine feet off the off the ground so but i think some of them were found after some kind of storm or something right that there was this couple or two at the same time i don't know if they were fighting males or uh, amplexus oh i don't know but yeah uh sometimes yeah things like that'll bring them down uh high winds and heavy yeah. rain sometimes they come down so yeah i really wanted to see it because it's the the, the costa rican uh, species actually it's even two now are just a little less spectacular than the uh, Amazon version. Yeah. These is... uh, growths on their legs and everything. Yeah. And uh, the coloration, a spectacular frog. But yeah, if uh, if I get back to my focus on long species list, <laughs> get, going back to Peru is even a, a very eva- um, worthy option because I think I could get another 100 species by doing another trip there as well. So. Yeah, And I've been thinking, again, I'm sorry, I will try to shut up about Edwin after this, but um, I've been especially thinking about it because I would love to do uh, this another time with that guy. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah, you never know. Uh, I hope he has a long and uh, fantastic life ahead of him, but you never know when uh, time's up. Yeah. So I really hope to get back there before that. So that's kind of always stuck in my mind together with newer uh, destinations like Madagascar, where I want to go uh, in a couple of weeks, but that's out of the question now. Oh, uh, yeah. So many other places, but yeah, Peru is uh, 
it will always be uh, i lost my jungle virginity there so it will always <laughs> it will always be very special to me i hear you i hear you i understand that completely have you done southeast asia much uh one trip in malaysia but we ah. did quite well i think we had about 130 or 140 species there very which good is, yeah it's it sounds like a, a disrespectful way of um measuring the value of the trip by just mentioning this species number but i'm sorry i i already <laughs> confessed that i'm a list junkie yeah but we had blue coral snake and uh, these flying tree frogs and um, ah. the um uh, draco the flying lizard or whatever that's called mm -hmm. in english yeah um which is not so hard to see but of course was something uh special for there i got to see a couple of them gliding from tree to tree I could uh -huh. never capture it with my camera, but I did get to see it. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the um, I made that comparison to those um, Wallace flying tree frogs with uh, Cruzio Hyla from Costa Rica because I saw um, both of them diving out of the sky in the same way. Oh, really? Because that, that Cruzio Hyla also stretches its front legs like uh, the same way they did, and then you have to try to catch it, but. Um, yeah, um, Malaysia it was special. It was also a quite dry uh, trip, so it, snakes were tough, but we were in a good uh, crew. We had eight people, and every night um, we had uh, teams of two. There were two teams of two that did hiking and two teams of two that did driving because we had two cars. Oh, cool. So, yeah, and then at the end, it's always the same. I always go back to work to... Um, relax instead of normal people going on vacation to relax and uh, <laughs> recharge their uh, batteries. But yeah, no King Cobra, but a uh, lot of the other stuff that uh, was really special. I spent a week there last year and uh, I know I want to go back. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good time. I, I saw a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. I I keep an eye on everything you do, Mike. Uh, that's... <laughs> It doesn't get by me, <laughs> but yeah, it it um, it's 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 I, like I said, the neotropics are still closer to my heart somehow. And Africa, the African jungles, I haven't been to because um, of more uh, pragmatic or less exciting reasons. Because it it seems more of a hassle in terms of getting things done and getting around and being allowed to do what you want to do. It's uh, I mean, I'm ob obviously I'm generalizing and I have no experience, so who am I to talk <laughs> about it? But uh, yeah, in Peru, with the, all the organization uh, skills of uh, Guillermo and other people there, it was no care in the world, never being afraid of being mugged or robbed or whatever. It was... Yeah. And that, unfortunately, that type of stories is... Um, I get quite a lot of people herping in Africa. Oh, really? Also, also herping guides who uh, trick you uh, into um, believing that they found certain snake species, but then you discover that they were carrying these snakes into in their backpack the entire trip. Oh, my gosh. That happened. If that would happen to me, I would be, to put it mildly, enormously angry. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, some friends of mine told me. Yeah, we went out, and then yeah, we and after after the trip, you are only sure about the stuff you found yourself, and then you say, yeah, it's true that um, Ateris or that um, 
Gabonica, uh, Buff Adder, Bitis Gabonica had nose damage. So you oh. can tell that that's a bit of a sign of uh, captive life and not the best type of captive life. So, yeah, um, yeah that's that's a kind of the, the bad advertising I pick up. But I have to admit, it's surely a generalization that I'm making. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, speaking as a as a wildlife guide, somebody whose job it is to make people happy, um, the best part is when my clients come down and they find it themselves. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, I mean, I've I've found a lot of stuff for people uh, over the years, but when they get to find it themselves, that's the best part. I, I just set it up for them, and they go out and they find it, and that, and that yeah. you know, that's to me, that's the best part. It depends a bit on the client, I suppose, because some people um, yeah, can be uh, anxious to find stuff themselves, which I think is really a big thing for uh, U.S. herpers, because a lot of these uh, live listers or species hunters, whatever you want to call them, they have to have found the species individually themselves. But um, Yeah, yeah but there's some of that. It's uh, Some people are... Maybe are just like okay. I'm going to sit here in in uh, in this uh, comfy chair, and you are the guide, guy, and you have to bring everything in front of my lens. And now chop chop, <laughs> you go into the woods and bring me all these animals. Did you never uh, have any clients like that? Oh, I've had a few. I've had a few like that. Yeah, uh, I've had a few like that that are after a few days, they're more content with just hanging around uh, in the field station and then. That's fine. That's fine. As long as they don't expect you to, uh, because some people may have this kind of idea, I'm paying you for this. So you are a kind of a mild version of a slave for me. (laughs) I, I, I've had, I'm I'm not going to go into detail, but I've had that experience with just a few people. Ah, okay. But for the most part, um, I'm just a facilitator. Um, you know, I make, um, my job is to make them make it happen for them where they can have a good time uh, and keep them out of trouble and keep them, oh, you know, give them stopped again. And here's the second interruption in our conversation. Sorry about that, but uh, hey, you still got more than an hour to go. So let's get back to it. We're back. I tried to mem- I, I tried to remember where we were this time. <laughs> <laughs> About uh, a bad client that should not be named any further. Yeah, I won't. I won't go any further. But yeah, for the most part, people are just ha- you know, and I like I like being there with people when they find something too. You know, yeah, come out of, as well. on the you know on the trail and they get to see their first bushmaster or their first coral snake or tree frog or whatever it is, and and I I just enjoy being along with them and yeah i have that as well especially in europe i have really enjoyed to um showing uh, other people younger people uh, different sites and different species especially the enthusiastic type of people i mean the more happy they are with seeing these species the more i i uh, <laughs> enjoy watching them having fun with yeah. it now do you get a lot of of people from the u.s coming over well, no, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> wow. And maybe that's a kind of a good um, way of diving into U.S. versus European herping <laughs> to talk about okay. that for a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I want to say that I'm I'm intrigued to uh, about European herbs. I'd love to come over and and jump into that at some point, but uh, I don't really know how that works over there. You know, I yeah. obviously you guys do you guys do much road cruising and things like that, like they do over in in United States or. No, that's uh, one thing to begin with. Road cruising is highly unproductive around here. Okay. And if I say around here, I'm talking about uh, the whole of Europe because where I'm at in Belgium, it's definitely not worth the um, gas money. But um, I mean, a lot of people think that we are more or less or at least partially at the same latitude and the climate is not that different. But that's not really true, especially the um, parts of the U.S. That where road, cru- uh, road cruising is productive. The climate is quite different, and that translates also into um, different um, uh, activity patterns of these snakes, by which I mean that we don't have a lot of nocturnal snake activity in general. There's a few, but even those, they are not too keen on crossing roads. So... For me, it worked a little bit the other way around. I never knew road cruising was a thing before I uh, first went to the US. And it's actually, I have a bit of a um, a mixed feelings about road cruising because if road cruising is more productive, uh, like when we went to Arizona, um, at the, the if you look at what you found at the end of the trip, it's, it seems it's, it's more productive to road cruise than to hike sometimes. Yes. But then you come back home and you feel like, oh, I've did, I did a, an, an, a nature adventure. I went in the, out into the wild. But if you think about it, actually, you've been in a car for a lot of the time. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So yeah. I love it because the excitement you get of, of seeing uh, uh, the shape of a rattlesnake or even in Morocco, a puff adder like the speed bump kind of uh, bulging uh, big uh, thing in the middle of the road, that kind of um, a sensation after driving for a long time, finding little or nothing. I love it, but um, yeah, it, it, it's kind of a mixed feelings uh, thing. But in Europe, it doesn't really work. So what we do um, for snakes is uh, mainly just hiking or walking really slowly along um, dry stone walls. That's really a thing. Oh. So that's uh, mainly in the southern countries, like in Greece, uh, Spain, Italy. Um, Okay. Let me go straight ahead and say, if you have to start off somewhere, Greece is the way to go because abundance and species-wise for snakes, it's much, to my experience, much richer than Italy or Spain. I think it has uh, historical reasons because um, the geology of the country is not that easy to uh, have big, flat uh, agriculture areas and things like that. So you get way more. um, The numbers of the snakes are higher. And then it's productive to walk along these, yeah, we call this, I don't know if dry stone wall is even a thing in the US, but it's something that uh, starts to be built up by farmers. They start with removing the the stones in their lot uh, of, uh, yeah, this can be a meadow or whatever. It can be an olive orchard or, and they pile them up. And after maybe, I don't know, maybe sometimes it's a century or whatever, you end up with a, a, a nice wall of stones, which is, uh, has some vegetation growing over it and has a lot of shelter for snakes. So what we do then is 
hike along these. Uh, I don't know if hiking is really a word to use because I think hiking is is the word you use for moving about decisively <laughs> and at a certain speed. So it's a slow affair, um, and really um, trying hard to spot even sometimes even a segment of a snake's body body, and then uh, you have to know the species that you're dealing with and dive as fast as you can. Ah. And that differs a bit because they're not all that fast. And one of my favorites is the Vipers uh, because they are not so fast. Because I'm, at best, a medium quality snake uh, catcher in European context. I do much better in the tropics because then it's just a matter <laughs> of finding less flighty uh, things at night often. <laughs> um, but uh, in Europe... Speed comes into it, but vipers, they are quite slow. I think it's just in their um, built-in, in their uh, uh, way of uh, life that they don't have to be fast because they're venomous and they're sit-and-wait predators, so they're not actively right. pursuing uh, mice or lizards or any prey items. So um, in terms of finding vipers, I, I, do, I would say I do quite well, but uh, the, the faster stuff, we have species like... Um, Platyceps nayadum. Everybody should look it up because it's a beautiful uh, snake. It's Dahl's whip snake. It's this, uh, it's really thin. It's like a pencil, and it has beautiful uh, black uh, spots in the neck with a white edge. But that's an active lizard hunter. So these lizards are not slow, and that snake has to be fast enough to uh, get a hold of them. So for a, a human to be able to catch that snake, that's quite a bit of a challenge. But uh, apart from dry stone wall hiking, you can also flip uh, stuff. That's also, I think, something we have in common. Although, for some reason, um, these boards you have in the US, which are made of uh, plywood or I don't know what material, that's something that is not so popular in Europe as oh, a really? material. While I have the idea that it's really good for snakes. It can be, yeah. Because yeah. it's to my mind, it it has a different way of uh, maintaining humidity, and uh, often mm -hmm. you have this frame tied to it, which which uh, automatically offers a bit of space between the soil and the board surface. So there's some room where they can get catch uh, indirect heat instead of being in direct contact with uh, what's on top of their body. Right. But yeah. we don't really have that. So yeah, we flip um, anything. And for non-herpers, it's um, hard to understand that dump sites can be a joy. <laughs> Mattresses, uh, fridges, whatever. Especially for these um, opportunistic kind of species like Malpolon, which is a Montpellier snake. Yeah. Which is like, um, it has, um, it's a mildly venomous uh, snake and it, it has these... Um, you could say uh, eyebrows, ridges between the, the nostrils and the eyes, which makes it appear very serious uh, in yeah. the gaze. Actually, there's a gland underneath that uh, they use to um, to uh, rub their skin. They also rub this, this um, substance on uh, the uh, rocks or whatever to mark their territory. But it's oh, also, really? It's also used to... Um, how do you call that? So to uh, reduce um, uh, loss of uh, moisture from their body. Oh, okay. Like like these frogs also, um, I think that it's Phylomedusa that, who does that, right? Yeah, where they put like a waxy yeah. substance over their... Well, it's a bit like that. So these snakes um, are, um, yeah, in terms, if we, if we 
step away from the water snakes, so the natric species, grass snake and um, die snake, which is more or less similar to uh, the Nerodias and uh, Tamnophis from the US, those are dirt common. But these um, Montpellier snakes, they from the terrestrial snake species, they are also quite abundant because they are opportunistic. And that's also something I got to learn, like I think many herpers, that snakes are not uh, is most readily found in pristine areas, but in places where there's a lot of food. Yes. And dump sites are a good place to stop. I, I see. <laughs> and I guess uh, the, the stone walls are good places for lizards, so you're yeah. lizard-eating species. Yeah. So, and apart from those general tactics... There's also a little bit of more special uh, tea stuff. So we have one snake species that you could call truly nocturnal. The others do it a little bit, but there's one uh, Telescopus phallax. We call it the oh. cat snake, which is a, a very nondescript name because you have cat-eyed snakes all over the world. But mm -hmm. uh, that's a, a gecko uh, eater. So that's one that's out hunting at night. But... Um, so for that one, it's just walking along walls with or ridges or whatever, rock faces with a lot of geckos, and then you might find them. But that's really an exception. It's not um, nocturnal snake hunting is, is quite limited for us, unfortunately. But what we do have is, to my mind, where Europe shines is in the salamander department or salamanders and newts. We don't, uh, our species diversity is in general, again, very low because... When I went to the Appalachians and I was, somebody told me about a magical campground that had 15 species of salamanders, oh. including some that only eat other salamander species. That was uh, mind-blowing to me because if you um, leave newts out of the equation for a moment, we have at most, I would say, two or three uh, terrestrial salamander species living in the same habitat in Europe. So okay. that's that's not a lot, but this place in um, it was in Virginia, I think, where you have these Ionaglossies and slimy salamanders and mm -hmm. um, spring salamanders and seal salamanders and uh, all these species that you are much better acquainted with than I am. That was really fascinating, but still, to get back to the point I was trying to make <laughs> after before I started derailing my own line of uh, thought. <laughs> Um, a very common species, the alpine newt, to my mind, it's one of the, the best-looking uh, salamander and newt species in the world. This blue color with the orange belly and these uh, nice dots on the flanks. That's really uh, something that we I undervalue. It's like some something that's common. It can be brightly colored and attractive, but... It's so normal that you forget it's actually a really beautiful thing. Yeah, that one's on my list. It's really easy to find. We have yeah. it in the garden ponds. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. And then marbled salamanders with these, these green uh, and black uh, spotted uh, flanks. So, but I guess in general for you as herpes, the vipers will be probably the most... Um, attractive uh, subsection just because most people are into snakes anyway right and uh anywhere there's venom in in the equation it it makes it a, a little bit exciting so it tends to uh lead towards more uh, interest 
but um, yeah, I, I like them as well also because uh, if you photograph them, they will launch a couple of times uh, out, but then usually they are quite calm. So Viper photography is really a fun thing to do in absolute contrast to nude photography. Maybe that's the same <laughs> in the US, but that's something that, yeah. I would say that's probably the same. <laughs> you use this aquarium and you try to uh, set it up nicely, but they have this um, desire to hit the edges of the frame. So you don't want to have yeah. that in your picture, of course. Right. So push it back with a little piece of wood or whatever, <laughs> one time, 10 times, 100 times. So, um, But vipers are, are calm and um, cooperative. So what else? There's, there's some more things that might be really different between U.S. and European herping, I think. Well, the, just the, the difference when, when you talk about road cruising. So it sounds like... Um, in Europe, you spend the entire day out and then you go have a meal and then you get a good night's sleep and you do it all again. Um, yeah. You, uh, the, you, you mean like if there, it's less a uh, uh, 24-7 uh, kind of deal? You yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, if you go to Arizona, right, you can yeah, spend yeah. the whole day hiking up in, a, in the mountains. Yeah. And then you get something to eat and you get in your car and then you road cruise all night until late. And, late in the night and then you get up and and so there's it's much more uh the pace is um yeah much higher you know it's very true because um going to arizona put some pressure on some friendships i had because uh <laughs> i'm kind of um i would lie if i would say that i'm a relaxed type of herper i really want to get the most out of the trips i do so in arizona especially like i said the night temperatures were dropping quite quickly so there was this feeling of, yeah, we have to head out now. There's no time to sit in a restaurant or whatever. Uh. I have to admit that I was um, a more stressful person back then than I am now as well. So it's a bit of a learning process as well. <laughs> but yeah, in Europe, it's, it's, uh, it's true. Of course, in the nighttime, you can still do amphibian targets always. But um, yeah. usually these things... Um, require a little bit different weather so the best amphibian nights you would want some rain and if that rain lasts throughout the day you will not really have the best reptile day ever right so yeah usually it's uh, the ticket is to focus on um, a certain season so april may is the best time of year to uh, herp in southern europe because you can more or less um, get everything then the entire herp list of uh, an area or a country Okay. Wow. In Spain, it's a bit tougher because in the south of Spain, a lot of the amphibians are in African mode, by which I mean the reproduction happens way earlier. They, a lot of them uh, reproduce in winter, like they do in Morocco and Northern Africa. Okay. But the Italian and Greek amphibians, to begin with, they are not that species-rich. Uh, there's less species, but... A lot of them are still readily found in uh, April and May. So that's the time of year to do that. But yeah, it's indeed, uh, it's true that you can get these um, every now and then a moment of relaxation and the time to <laughs> sit down and have a meal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I always like that part of it too, especially when I'm going somewhere new and I'm with people I don't know very well, because that's the, 
the opportunity to sit and talk and develop friendships and things like that. So I always appreciate, you know, good meal on, on a trip. Um, and, and that also one of the things about that's true for road cruising too, in a way, if you're out with the new people is you spend a, you know, four or five hours yeah, in the car yeah. and, and you talk and you get to know each other. And that's true. You know, so it no, can be a, it can be a bonding yeah. experience. There's no way you cannot uh, connect and, yeah, or you, or you can yeah. get into a fight as well, I guess, but that rarely happens. Yeah, yeah. As long as as long as you keep finding stuff, because <laughs> to my yeah. experience, the the atmosphere on trips is always good if you keep finding stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. And and road cruising, I'll have to say it it does after a few nights of it, and if like you say, if it's not you're not stopping and finding cool uh-huh. stuff the whole time. Yeah. Uh, it kind of gets on my nerves and I, yeah. I just want to stop and get out and walk around, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I often, often I, 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 in Arizona, I think I was dry, the driver a lot of the time, but then when it got nighttime, just dusk, I often, uh, said, okay, I've, I'm, I want to walk around now for a bit yeah. because yeah, that's the, a bit of a magical time of the day. Um, but yeah, it's I can imagine that if you don't find stuff, because I was thinking then also, you st- you can run into these um, discussions. Are are we going to go on for another lap or another hour or not? And then somebody says yes, and somebody else says no. Or <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. But as long as the, yeah. the the animals keep coming, everybody's uh, happy. Well, you know, I I've been doing this for a while, and I'm less willing to stay out until three or four in the morning to find one more night snake (laughs) yeah well that's also because you learned about the time window i guess because when i went to arizona i i I didn't really know that so i thought because i guess some people told me yes you can still find stuff uh, at 2 p.m or whatever but that's true but um it's not really worth it because after three or four days you are exhausted and um yeah, yeah, and so, I, I've been out with people who who have literally cruised until the sun come up, comes up, you know, and and I'm like, you know, this this is not. <laughs> you can do that, but not uh, not for two weeks uh, every day. No, no, <laughs> no. You have to pace yourself a little bit, but uh, maybe I should have had, uh, before I uh, went to Arizona. I should have had your book back then to uh, <laughs> be a little bit better informed. <laughs> I think you're past the book, but <laughs> actually, a little bit of what I was saying about the snake uh, hunting uh, tr- uh, tips is also um, described in our book. So, after I herped the entirety of uh, Europe, me and a couple of friends wrote a, f- a new field guide for uh, the European herps. Oh, okay, cool. Which, which is, um, it's, it, there's really not a way to say this without sounding arrogant, but I'm. I think I can say that it's the standard field guide for European herbs now. Oh, cool. Cool. So uh, in the beginning chapters, we tried to describe these things also a little bit. It was not so easy because that's also something um, actually before we went, you started recording. I asked you, when are you going to have somebody interview you? So this is something I want to ask you as well. How do you strike a balance between um, informing people about herping techniques and giving away t- too much um, sensitive details. Oh, that's a that's a very good question, right? 
Um, because you want people to, in my mind, when, when we start writing these things in books, the idea is not to produce like a cookbook, right? With a recipe for doing all these things. The idea is to give people some basic concepts that they can take out and then apply and build their experience, right? And so as you, you build your experience and then you you yourself can, you find more things, you get better at it and you get better at it and you improve. So my the goal is not to provide a shortcut to the higher level, ex, you uh-huh. know, level of experience, but to give you uh, the basic, right? The basic stuff, yeah. what, how you should be thinking or, you know, things you should be thinking about, the idea of making notes, the idea of, trying to remember what it is you're doing and, and applying your mistakes to the next trip yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah. So that, that was the approach I tried to take with that. Cause you know, did, wanna... that, did that come naturally? I mean, uh, um, or, or did you discuss this a little, uh, a lot with uh, <laughs> your co-author? What, what can go in or what cannot? Yeah. We, on the same page. We, we did discuss this a little bit because we wanted to, we, we didn't want to, Right. What do you call it? A tell-all book or a yeah. um, a a book where you give all your secrets away. We didn't want that because we want people to to work for those things. That's that. Yeah. I think that's with anything in life, right? You you have to to work and you have to learn and you have to grow. It's also a little bit of the old the old guy feeling, I think, by which I mean uh, the before internet era. Uh, I mean, I'm younger than you are, but still, I I'm old enough to <laughs> uh, to re- to remember how that worked. I, sending um, old-fashioned handwritten letters to people asking about herbs and learning things. Yes. While now it's uh, it's already uh, super easy. The the entry uh, level uh, is not the same anymore. Right. Uh, it is it's it is quite different and. But I'm I'm also not a big fan of I know some really good stuff and you don't. And I don't like that holding on to things. I, I also like the idea of helping people a little bit, and especially uh-huh. especially kids, because I have a lot of experience and you have a lot of experience. But personally, I've also made a lot of mistakes. And, you know, it took me a long time to figure a lot of stuff out because I I wasn't, yeah. you know, the thought processes weren't there. So I also want people to avoid mistakes where it counts. Well, like with venomous snakes, right? Yeah. We can't be making too many mistakes with venomous snakes. And and something uh, completely different is you don't want to make mistakes with your reputation, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't want to make make stupid decisions that affect how your relationship with other herpers or yeah. or scientists or biologists. You don't want to. You don't want to mess that up. So I. You that's, know, that's even the other worse. Thing. That's even worse if it's a professional uh, thing. Now, of course, for me, I have to right. learn this a little bit even now because, as is obvious, apart from herping, talking is is also a big hobby of mine. Uh, so uh, <laughs> that means that it's not always easy to um, to uh, decide what to say or what not when and where yeah. especially if you're dealing with uh, people who are paying you to do research and these things you say can have consequences i mean with venomous snakes somebody can die uh, in uh, my job context if i make a wrong decision 
maybe a breeding program or a release of a breed, bred, uh, breeding program animals will not take off. Right. So uh, I understand. Because I was, I wondered, because um, when we put this in our field guide, it, it had a little bit, um, we got some response of some people who said, oh, you shouldn't not have put that or this into the book. But maybe uh, that didn't happen for you because you were more uh, conscious. Yeah. Um, did, did you get any negative, uh, or negative is a strong word for this, but did you get any um, critiques or... Or you want to call it comments in that sign? Um, a few, a few. Um, some people were upset um, that we didn't uh, emphasize safety enough, um, but I, I think we did. No. Uh, I don't, nobody really, there was no negative material on uh, us giving away secrets or anything like that because we were, you know, we weren't really specific in that regard. So we didn't get a lot of that. Um, and, and it's kind of, when you're writing a book, that's sort of the focus is North America, but you can obviously use the concepts elsewhere, but the focus is North America. And how many different biomes are in North America? There's a lot of different, you know, deserts, there's you know, swamps, for, you know, forests, there's all these different grasslands, there's all these different places and everything has its different herping component. Uh-huh. So it's kind of hard to be specific and give away a lot of secrets there. You, you, you know, unless yeah. you, you know, like I say, you give everybody a directions and a recipe for how to do this. Yeah. So I don't think we quite ran into that the way maybe you did with, because your book is a little more specific about. Uh, yeah, maybe it is. Harping. I don't know. <laughs> it's just a small part of it actually, because the main uh, part is it's just a regular field guide with species uh, descriptions. Yeah, I don't have it, but I can't wait to get my hands on it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you will like it. <laughs> um, actually, I never intended to write a book. The way it started was how uh, I'm really old-fashioned in the way that I like books with drawings, but there's not that many that I would uh, that that meet my uh, high uh, dis- dem- quality level uh, requirements. So. It started by seeing this guy doing a couple of drawings of some species and posting it. We we used to, well, we still have like a little brother version of the forum that you guys used to have. Both of them are not as popular as they used to be, but he posted that on this European uh, counterpart forum. And then I was thinking, how great would it be if this guy with these, he was so skillful, would um, make drawings of the entire European uh, Herpetofauna. And then the next step to wrapping that kind of uh, work up in a field guide was quite um, simple. And then I thought uh, we will never find the publisher who is willing to do that because there were already field guides that existed. But um, to my surprise, the publishers were quite enthusiastic. And I think it's also the drawing because yeah, we tried to do a really good job on the writing and, and everything else as well. But it's not, a, it's not, a, the magic is in the drawing. I mean, um, if you write a field guide, we're not inventing these things. It's not, as the creative process is limited. It's a lot of work, but still yeah. it's, we have this expression um, with, uh, in my language, maybe it exists in English as well. If you have two, uh, 10 books and a pair of scissors, you have an 11th book. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
<laughs> that was kind of the feeling I had. So I, we were really happy and surprised that somebody wanted to publish it. And then yeah, once we were past that uh, step, we tried really hard to do our best. Well, how long did it take to you to write it? Well, um, the pace, the, the entire um, project took about five years, but that's because of the drawing uh, process. If it would have been just the writing and the distribution maps, which is a whole huge pile of work itself, um, we could have done it faster. But actually, I didn't mind that it was spread over um, a larger amount of time because right. It's sometimes the fun goes out of it if you have a deadline and you have to uh, finish it by this or then. But I cannot yeah. complain. The publisher was quite um, relaxed about that. That's good. That's good. I have a, I have re a lot of respect for anybody who takes on a field guide. <laughs> That's just not easy. I mean, like you say, range maps, illustrating properly, um, uh, and then species descriptions that are accurate and provide you know you, how do you how do you come up with the right format where you provide enough information yeah. but uh and not know. too much copy pasting of course yeah. we started right. my my um idea was you always write what you already know about the species in those species descriptions and only then you go and check what the others wrote yeah yeah which is a bit of a difficult deal because what the others wrote has been already at least partially in your brain for 10 years or so. So, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I can't even imagine doing that. So I have yeah, my hats off to you for that. <laughs> it's for me, it's, it's, it, I always feel a little bit guilty because the drawings are to me, uh, without that, we wouldn't have had a field guide. And we, there's, we put pictures in there as well, photographs, but, mm -hmm. um, just to here and there show some different color morphs or things like that. Sure. Because it's, I don't know what your idea about that is, but um, I'm really still in the drawing uh, camp of uh, preference of what type of field guide is the better one. What do you think? What do you prefer? Um, I like field guides that have a mix of illustra you know, illustration and, and photographs. Uh, of course, I, can, I think we're kind of spoiled because we have the... Uh, uh, Conant and then later Conant and Collins yeah, yeah. field guides, which were were well done and had a, ver a number of various techniques with photography and then the uh, a lot of drawings that illustrate you know yeah. particular identification uh, points for a species. Yeah, how to tell you know one thing from another, and so I think those to me. Uh, I like the I like the best, but I, that's just sort of what I grew up with. So I that's what yeah. I that's what I really enjoy. Yeah, we didn't start off with. Um, I mean, the first field guide you had surely didn't have all these, didn't have color photographs and drawings no. and everything together. I, I imagine because um, it's it's uh, something I'm in a way happy that's behind me because uh, after it was finished. Me and one of the uh, co-authors did the Dutch translation as well. Oh. They paid us a little bit, but really nearly nothing. The main motivation for me was that I wanted my kids to be able to read this book at ah. an earlier age before learning English. <laughs> <laughs> but when once that was finished, I was I really was um, 
had been quite enough the years and time that I worked on that. But uh, afterwards, you get a positive uh, response and you are there's pride, which comes in place of hard work. I'm sure that's the same yeah. for you guys with your book. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you're writing these things for money, you've got it all wrong. <laughs> yeah, you, that's that's something that came up in previous uh, shows as well of yours. Yeah. Uh, uh, so <laughs> I, I, was, I agree with that completely. It was... Uh, I mean, some people do if you write cookbooks or whatever, I guess. But um, I guess, but uh, thank goodness I never had to write books or do podcasts to make a living. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank goodness. Herpetology is, uh, herping is not really that popular to uh, make a living anyway, I guess. No, no. Although, although um, while we were talking, I was thinking about this as an, another difference between U.S. and European herping is the number of people who are doing it. Oh. Because yeah. um, this European scene is really small. You could say that the really um, hardcore herpers in Europe, it's about the same amount of uh, people as uh, the number of birders in, a, in Belgium, which is a, a country with only 11 million inhabitants. So... Um, for me, it was a really funny and weird experience, again, to um, road cruise some of the more um, famous roads in Arizona and run into other people crossing us and asking, are you guys herping? Uh-huh. That was a sentence that I have never heard before, because if you herp in Europe, and maybe after all the complaining I did about we don't have a lot of species and this and that, maybe that's the upside of herping in Europe. You usually have every site for yourself, <laughs> ah, okay. to yourself. So, uh, this so you of... you think maybe there's a couple thousand people in Europe that do this? Is that a fair number? It depends on what you uh, what you would call doing this. If it's doing uh, herb trips on a regular basis, I think a couple of thousands is already a lot. Okay, it's probably way less. And I think it's it kind of, at least for um, a lot of the southern countries, they are not really, um, I have to uh, think how to phrase this. I think I'm going to flip it around. Instead of speaking, uh, risking to speak badly about people from the Mediterranean, I will speak badly about where we are at. We've lost so many um, species and habitats that we started caring more about nature. So the... Uh the herper scene is uh, more numerous in the countries that have fewer herbs, which is weird, I guess. But in the countries mm. where there are many species, there is, you can tell this also if you look at how many professional herpetologists there are working in some countries. Like, for instance, I said Greece is like um, one of the best herping countries in Europe. In Greece, there are oh, very few professional herpetologists, maybe. Maybe I don't know all of them, but I would say hmm. 10 is already a lot while they have all the species. So um, I guess I'm, I, I'm, I never really, um, I'm not sure if that's the same in, in the US because maybe there's also more herpers in, um, in New York than in Arizona. I don't know. Or maybe they all move to Arizona if they get a <laughs> chance. <laughs> well, I think some, actually some do um, move. I think... Um... Well, for years, the number of people in the United States who did this was pretty small. Uh -huh. I, I always used to say we couldn't fill a baseball stadium. 
Uh, (laughs) And it's true. But I have, over the past decade, I have seen a surge in the number of people who who actively, what I or active field herpers, maybe not hardcore like some of us who are out there, you know, you know, fifty trips a year or whatever. But uh, there's a lot more people who are interested in it, and I go by mostly I go by social media, right? Yeah. And like we have the North American Field Herping Association, which uh, has twenty twenty five thousand people on it now. Wow. Um, and so for years, that number was a couple thousand. Okay. You know, back in the days of field herb forum, how many people were on that forum? About 4,000 at the yeah. you know maximum. And over the past decade, that number has just gone up and up and up. And the, it's not just, um, you know, field herping used to be the, in the United States used to be the, uh, a thing for young Young white males, that was that was yeah. the demographic, and that is no longer the case. And uh, We still have some work on that front, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I was just kind of curious about that because I, I see, I have personally, because I'm an admin for a couple of groups, uh-huh. and I approve people coming onto the group, I have a really good sense of yeah, yeah. how many come on and what, the, what their background is. And I've just seen this complete, and, uh, and this has happened in, in the world of birding, too. Uh, birding, the interest in birding has just taken off. Uh-huh. Like, it's it's also comparable. And uh, and more women, more minorities, uh, at least in the United States, are, are involved yeah. in this. In fact, when I do most of the approvals for the, the, the North American field herping uh, group, and I get more females wanting to join the group than males now. Wow. That's great. Uh, yeah, which is uh, you know something yeah. I, I try to keep. Once I started paying attention to that, now I cannot, I can't yeah, stop yeah. paying attention to it. So, <laughs> and it, it's just amazing to me that uh, it yeah. used to be you know one in ten were female or something like that. Now, probably I want to say sixty forty, yeah. female to male. And um, I'm from listening to your shows, I kind of get the impression that for sure you, but I think. Uh, in general, most herpers seem to uh, regard this as a purely positive evolution. But in Europe, it's a bit different because people tend to think, uh, okay, these spots will get overcrowded or whatever. Oh, yeah. And I think that there's also a little bit more reason to t- think that way because, um, yeah, we've had habitat loss since, um, let's say, the Middle Ages or whatever. Yeah. Um, um, at least in in the parts of the U.S. that I've seen, which maybe are the nicer ones, there's a lot of uh, vast open areas where you can uh, enjoy nature and even um, collecting uh, some animals will not harm any population there. But here it's like some people get get a bit um, careful, or um, I'm, I cannot find the word, right word. Um, they are concerned, that's the word, um, about um, that these places, these spots would get overrun. And- yeah. Well, I mean, we've had that happen in the United States, too, um, because obviously there are some very popular places to herp in the United States, like, well, like Arizona. And, yeah. and you know, there are people that live in Arizona that complain about all the out-of-state herpers that come into Arizona and... Yeah. and uh, and and you know not everybody is um, ethical, 
and, and not everybody leaves a good impression. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I think we maybe we have the same problem, but because we have a uh, we've got many more square hectares or mm-hmm. acres to to spread out across. It's not as bad of a problem. We've you know we have poaching problems here as well, things like that. But um, in terms of harping as a recreational activity, I, I think we we probably have the same problems. But they're you would think it would be worse in the United States for some things, but because it's larger, it's not as yeah. bad as it could be. In, you know, a smaller area. Yeah. All right. So if I come over to Europe and, and go do some herping, I'm um, probably not going to run into a lot of other herpers. And if you do, they will say, hey, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> That's kind of the, the, the synthesis of what we've been saying. Okay. No, that, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of true. And in the most, it's in the most parts of the U.S. also like that. But um when we were looking for uh, vine snakes in Arizona, there's this one special road that everybody mm-hmm. knows. So in um, the prime season, there will always be herpers every night there, I think. So yeah. um, that was kind of different, yeah, at least. Yeah. Well, we also have this this place uh, called Snake Road, which I'm sure you've heard of. Yes. Uh, which least. is in the southern part of my state, Illinois. But that sounds like it's really... Um, there's a lot of uh, how do you call that social uh, control. Everybody's keeping an eye, eye out uh, for yeah. each other, so it doesn't yeah. cause any trouble. Yeah, for the most part, that's true. Um, it's more of a uh, it's a social gathering, and um, it's a good place because it's what we call neutral ground, right? It's yeah. it's uh, protected land that you're allowed to to come on and and observe these things, but it's it's also protected. Uh, so you, if you're just getting into herps and you want to go see a lot of a lot of herps in a, a small area, it's a good place to go. You don't have to worry about being on private property. You don't have to worry about trespassing or things like that. You can just go to this area and uh, yeah. and see a lot of cool stuff without you know without doing you know what I consider a lot of damage. Yeah, so. it sounds like it's a kind of a unique uh, setup in a way, the combination of where it is and how it's, um, I mean, how people can keep an eye on each other in a way to not do anything oh, yeah. stupid oh, yeah. or wrong. Um, yeah. But yeah, in Europe, um, I have to think really hard to remember times where I ran into a fellow herpers. And if I do, it's often people I know. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. It's a it's a it's a different story, but um, a lot of them want to come to the U.S. <laughs> for herping. Although yeah. some would co- some would call this uh, t- t- um, not enough uh, off the beaten track. It's not a- adventurous enough. Oh well, but, I still think you can do that here. Yeah, for me, it, the U.S. has a special place in my heart as well because it was the first place to start off, and because like. There's other places like that as well, like, for instance, Australia. Um, it's very convenient. You have, don't have to worry about too much, about safety, about uh, accommodation, about food. All these things are so easy, especially in the U.S., because in, um, in Europe, in a lot of places, you will not find um, a place to buy a drink or anything late at night. Yeah, yeah. We don't have these uh, shops that are open all night, so that was also 
to my mind, the U.S. at first it was like heaven. It was like, oh, I can herb any time of the day, and there's always uh, some motel that I can uh, find a bed, and there's always a place where I can get a snack or a drink. So that was that's really for me also a big uh, bonus of herping in, <laughs> in the states. Yeah, yeah, you can keep moving and you can cover a lot of ground, yeah. right? And you can stop and get a cup of coffee at uh, nine o'clock at night and keep going. Yeah. So I make uh, I, I advertise herping in the U.S. quite a bit to other people uh, in Europe here, but yeah. There's a few there's a few U.S. herpers who've talked to me about coming to Europe, and then there's other. I also have to like it goes in both both ways. That sometimes I get these questions that I find strange or surprising. Like some people say, is it possible to do a trip where I can see all the European viper species in a week? What? Something like that, and then uh, <laughs> then the first thing I have to explain uh, is how transportation works in uh, Europe because uh, traffic is troubling. <laughs> we don't have like a lot of um, spatial planning in the U.S. involves straight roads going uh, endlessly through vast open areas, which is to to me the most uh, enjoyable way of driving. But here. Most of our roads have a lot of uh, curves because they've been around a lot of them since uh, ancient times. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, ancient is maybe not the right word, but I'm sure you get what I mean. Sure. And yeah, a lot of uh, spatial planning didn't ever happen uh, in a way. Like, for instance, if you drive into Italy and you want to head out along the um, Tyrrhenian Sea, so that's the west coast of Italy, you have to pass... Um, Genova, which is a big city, which is built on a hillside. And like any city, it's, it's been growing, but on the hillside, there's not a lot of room to grow. So there's um, houses built on um, highway tunnels and things like that. So it's it's anyway causing uh, your average driving speed to be low. And oh. also the driving experience is is absolutely different from at least the west of the US. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, I wouldn't say it's stressful, but you have to uh, be uh, alert all yeah. the time. You're not, you're not getting these long stretches of straight road that. Yeah. And then you also have to, uh, how do you call that? Use a clutch because uh, the yeah. have, uh, you have to change gears. Which is also, which is not that hard to learn, of course. But to me, it's um, driving uh, automatic, or how do you call that? Yeah, auto automatic transmission. Yeah, that's uh, f also adds up, adds to the holiday feeling for me because it's like, oh, I have an entire leg that I can throw out of out of the window now. See, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, uh, I, I like <laughs> I like driving a stick. Uh huh. Uh, so you know, manual transmission. So I. Going to Europe would be great because I would I would get over here. I just drive a I have an automatic transmission and yeah. uh, going back and being able to drive for a couple of weeks with a stick that would be for me that would be exciting because well, I, I enjoy it's it. good and everybody's having <laughs> everybody's having fun. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, um, maybe uh, some people listening would like to know the story, uh, the answer to the question: If you can see all European viper species in a week. No, you cannot. <laughs> I mean, anything is possible. Maybe it's possible, but it's really hard. And uh, uh, most of all, it would not be very enjoyable. Uh, right. 
So the species list, I'm not, I don't know it by heart. It's not that many. It's just like 10 or something. But um, there's at least one that's on a couple of small Greek islands. So that would, uh, you have to take a boat or a, a domestic flight at least to get there. Yeah. And then some others are um, just not easy to find because they don't, I, I, uh, I was talking earlier about as if everything lives in dry stone walls, but not all of them do. There's uh, the smallest um, species. There are actually two, the meadow vipers. They live, Ooh. they have like two uh, kind of, um, yeah, actually, I, want, I wanted to say they have two habitat types, but actually those two are not that different. The main difference is their uh, elevation. Ah. So they, they live in... Um, Habitats with short vegetation and at low altitudes, that's like uh, what we would call uh, steppe, grassland uh, areas, uh -huh. where they are highly um, endangered because most of these areas are, have turned into agriculture. And, right. and then there's the other uh, version, which is uh, mountain uh, populations, and these live in often in um, dwarf juniper bushes, and they are so small that they mainly feed on uh, grasshoppers and not on rodents. I have to admit, they do pick out the fat ones, the really big uh, grasshoppers. <laughs> but these, yeah, these animals, uh, it's not like we hit the spot and we will find it and we can move on to the next species. So if you would do a trip like that, to be more or less sure that you will find it, and then I'm not even talking about what weather you're going to get. Ah, uh, yeah. You should, you should like sometimes say to be on the safe side, you have to, to take into account spending two or three days. Ah. Uh. And then even still, in terms of preparation, you would, if you would not know anything about it at all, about where to go, um, it's not that easy. Yeah. Some of these species are really, really range uh, restricted. Even, um, yeah, like I, I've been saying a couple of times, we have uh, a high degree of habitat fragmentation. Some of these uh, uh, populations became extinct, and nobody was doing a breeding program on meadow vipers, so they never got back to uh -huh. uh, recolonizing these habitats. So you sometimes really have to know the right place, and then another a lot of other stuff like uh, slope, does it have to be south facing or maybe not? Uh, because some of like these meadow vipers, um, they're not, they are um, kind of a relictual species anyway, because they, they live in these types of habitats because the more, the richer habitats are occupied by other viper species. So in um, the southeast of Europe, that's nose horned uh, viper, Vipa amodites. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in um, Italy and France, it's asp viper. So these, um, there's, a, there's some kind of uh, exclusion going on, which makes the little guy, the meadow viper, being really range uh, restricted. I see. So that makes them t sometimes that they pick out or survive on particular types of slopes and not really always the hotter, the better. I see. So hmm. all these things, it's kind of... Um, complex uh, puzzle that you have to make if you would want to uh, hit that target of all the vipers in Europe. <laughs> but maybe it's still quicker to achieve than all the rattlesnakes in the US. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the distances are uh, rather different. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I'm still working on that one. <laughs>
It's still, I still have a few, uh, I mean, for the US, I've seen, I had a quick peek at my list because again, I am uh, obsessed with lists and I saw that I've seen a, a little bit over 200 US herbs, I think. Ooh. So there's still a lot left. Yeah. But uh, this, yeah, maybe in general and especially professionally, amphibians are more my thing, but rattlesnakes is uh, really something special for me. So what I still would like to see is uh, Arizona black and uh-huh. an, uh, an Eastern diamondback. Mm. Okay. Those are two. Uh, but yeah, the the ones that the, the ones that were really higher up on that list, I've seen already. The timber rattlesnake, the, I saw that with um, Armin in um, Louisiana, I think. Armin, Armin Meyer, yes. Yeah, that was uh, on his property. That was fantastic. Also, yeah. really habitat-wise, very fascinating. It looks like a Central European forest, but there's uh, all different types of trees, and it's it's you can tell that it's a different climate it's warmer yeah the idea alone of finding snakes in the forest is also something that you can forget about in europe yeah that is that is the pleasurable for me one of the pleasurable things about timber rattlesnakes uh-huh. is that you can find them in the forest uh-huh. you know uh and you know i i've you know i know exactly what i know what you saw when you went out with armin and where you saw them. And that's, to me, that's one of the great things about timber rattlesnakes is if you keep your eyes open and you walk through the woods, uh-huh. you might find a timber rattlesnake, you know? Yeah. And sometimes they're just coiled up at the base of a tree or along a log or whatever. You don't, you don't have to flip them or go to a yeah. special habitat. Sometimes they're just in the forest. Yeah. And well, you can road cruise them, but that's also because like the Western diamondbacks I've seen, that's, it's like, uh, I would have to think about it but i think at least 80 percent of them was on roads yeah so, uh, it's still uh not really the most natural uh, situation of or yeah. to find a snake in yeah i would much rather walk what we call walk them up yeah yeah i would rather do that so you're coming back to the united states at some point I <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i'm a, i'm crazy about salamanders also a lot in a way because it's like um a fascinating group. Actually, what drew me to herbs in the first place is also a little bit what drew me to salamanders next. I tend to like um, things that are not too popular. So that's why I quit birding at an early age and and moved to these less popular animals. Also because I didn't like to uh, uh, sit and uh, freeze... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in winter and sit still because and you cannot make a sound also these birders they were in my childhood i met i have to say i met some uh, unagreeable birders shut up and be quiet and uh, even if you you don't have any feeling in your fingers or toes anymore because maybe this um oh i don't know what name it was i remember the bird species but i don't know what it is in english a, a certain t- type of raptor that only Rarely, or at least back in those days, um, hits uh, Belgium in winter. So we had to sit there days on end. And that's when I decided I'm going to do something else. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I want to do something with animals that I can hold and that are not just dots in the sky and far away, which is uh, (laughs) something that children also naturally um, relate to. Yeah. Experienced. With herps, we have what I call the tactile advantage. Yeah, you can absolutely. get them in your hand, right? And um, 
experience them close up. And then, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's not so cold also. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't have to get up early. Yeah, well, you can, but yeah, in Peru, I have to admit, I didn't see a lot of birds because indeed we we didn't get up early enough, I suppose, <laughs> or there was some fog sometimes. In my, yeah. def in my defense, sometimes there was fog. <laughs> but um, yeah, actually, there... I think maybe when you do these Peru trips, you were also less um, lazy because after a little bit, we have to admit that most of us um, choose to only do the nighttime herping. Ah, yeah. and in daytime, we were a bit uh, lazy or uh, sleeping yeah. or doing whatever. Well, you, you have to know when to, when to herp and when to relax. So you can't, I, you know, I got people that come on the trips and then they try to do, you know, 18 hours of, 20 hours a day of nonstop yeah. herping. And after three or four days, they can't do it anymore. You have to, yeah. you have to take a break. You have to get some rest. And uh, I'm not in a good enough shape anyway to do that. <laughs> so uh, it's an easy, it's an easy decision. <laughs> yeah. But is that, um, I mean, there's some species over there. I don't know why we ended up talking about Peru again, but uh, <laughs> you didn't force me. So it's not your fault. Um <laughs> There's some species that you really ha have to do in daytime, I guess, uh, or at least that we did in daytime, like these um, atelopus, for instance. Yes. But um, I, I would imagine that the nighttime is the right time uh, for you as well over there. Right. Yeah. I like a good morning hike for things like rainbow boas, atelopus, things like that. Yeah. I do like a, I like to get out in the morning and dart frogs. You know, you poison frogs yeah, throughout yeah, yeah. during the day. But uh, yeah, nighttime is when all the all the other stuff comes out and all the, the crazy bugs come out. And uh, so uh, daytime for me is, you know, after a morning hike, I like to, we either take photographs in the afternoon or have, yeah. a, na have a nap yeah. and uh, get ready for the night. So, Well, nighttime herping, nocturnal herping is my absolute favorite anywhere and here as well it's not really a coincidence that i ended up doing fire salamanders because there's also night uh, time activity and also i um dedicated snake searching if you don't if you're not finding uh, a lot i have to admit i lack stamina to keep going with that <laughs> yeah and I, i'm really lucky to have this uh, fire salamander population that is so dense but in the very beginning, I have to admit that it was um, I started doing this uh, fire salamander research because there were no snakes around. Ah. Because as a as a younger herper like anybody, I would have preferred to do uh, capture mark recapture on other population or anything. Sure, everybody would prefer that. But now I would not want to trade. Because uh, these adders, they can live in habitats where you can twist your ankles every <laughs> five minutes. And um, I'm also not too great with um, doing long um, walks in the sun, so the nighttime. And ah. also because, <laughs> because in tropical environments, I discovered that I can compete with these, the best of European snake hunters. Because <laughs> it's just a game of... Um, spotting them and they don't get away that fast and everything right. like that i mean yeah. sometimes they do but we actually in peru also lost some snakes uh, out of uh, lack of experience these um 
Chironius, these oh, uh, yeah. these things, they are sleeping uh, coiled up, and then there's one in a little tree, and if we would have filmed that, we would have um, tried to delete every copy of that little clip, I think, because it was an embarrassment <laughs> for us as <laughs> ignorant herpers. We were trying to decide, oh, how are we going to get that snake out of this little, it was a silly little tree, a sapling, I think you would call that. And this snake was coiled up on top of it. Yeah, okay, you go that way. And because we were anticipating that it would take off like an arrow. And then, yeah, I will I will pull the tree down and you get the snake. And then what ended happening was somebody released the little tree a little bit too soon. And the snake on top of it was launched into <laughs> orbit. <laughs> oh so we God. never... We never got a hold of it. Oh. <laughs> so that was that was le a learning ec uh, experience moment <laughs> about how to deal with, uh, <laughs> or not to deal with snakes that are sleeping at night. Oh. Because yeah, and then you start you you even are stupid enough to t to think that you would still be able to f uh, recover it that snake <laughs> to find it after that. So oh, maybe it landed here, but of course this thing woke up and. Took off. Out of way as fast as it uh, <laughs> as it could. Oh well, listen. I I think I'm going to pull this into a close now. Uh, is there um, anything else that we want to talk about before we I sign think, off? I think I'm, I hope uh, the listeners are still awake by now <laughs> because I have a feeling it's it might turn into a long episode. So, well, they they seem to like the longer ones, so I, I think we're in good shape here. Okay, good to but, know. Yeah, but I I have to go put a turkey on my on my grill because uh -huh. today is Thanksgiving and uh, oh and uh, we're so you're doing this on a holiday. Yeah, well, you know this podcast never stops. We're dedicated to uh, bringing, wow bringing somebody, quality. Somebody should give you a medal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I I do got to get a turkey on the grill here. But okay. Uh, um, well, thanks for fitting, uh, adjusting to my uh, availability because we don't have that holiday. So I was completely right. unaware of, uh, yeah. of that. Well, I, I had the time today because we're not traveling here. You know, uh -huh. like everybody, we're staying home and uh, having a small holiday, my, my wife and I, and yeah. uh, and that's it. So, uh, so I had time to to work this in, and I'm happy. I'm happy it all worked out because uh, I really enjoyed our conversation. Me and, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it's great to finally get a chance to, to sit down and talk to you for a while. And like I said, uh, I really hope somebody will interview you at some point <laughs> because uh, you may have noticed that I stealthily try to uh, go in that direction sometimes <laughs> because there are certainly things that I would uh, I would like to find out and maybe you could uh, allow your listeners to send in some questions and then... Okay. Well, we can you know, find out some more about your uh, obsessive life listing, <laughs> so I can feel a little bit less guilty. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm feeling some pressure to to, <laughs> to um, from you and other people to to do that. So at some point, I'm sure that'll that'll happen. And uh, I I I really enjoy talking to you too because I I'm you know uh, an obsessed life lister like you are, and so it's just good kind of good to hear. You go through that, and uh, I appreciate yeah, because, that. Because even within the Herper community here, which is not too big, uh, it's frowned upon by a lot of people uh. to uh, go about like that. So that's why I also really uh, wanted to talk to you, because I know... <laughs> 
we can uh, share uh, some um, <laughs> similar uh, burdens. <laughs> yeah, and we're both in the same range. You know, we're in the thousand species range. Yeah, to, at the same time. So, yeah. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. Um, it's just re- extra special for me to talk to you, and uh, really appreciate it. And uh, I will uh, um, be sure to send me your uh, link to your book because I want to put that in our show notes too so that folks can discover that. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you. And hopefully I will get a chance to see you in the field somewhere, whether it's Peru or the United States or somewhere in Europe. Uh, I'd like to make that happen sometime. It sounds like it would be a shame that uh, I would never end up uh, at Snake Road. Well, you have to come here sometime. <laughs> you, uh, you let me know if you uh, want to do that. I'll, uh, I'll make sure you have a pretty good time. But now that you told me that you know how Cruzdohila sounds like, <laughs> Peru might also be a good option. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, well, we'll we'll get Advent out there to help us too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at yeah. least I desperately need him to help me anytime. <laughs> okay, all right. Once again, good to talk to you. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye. That's it for episode 27. I want to thank Jeroen Spaybrook for coming on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed our long talk, and I look forward to meeting you somewhere in the world someday. And, and by the way, the turkey turned out just great. And I want to say thanks once again to all of the folks who support the show via Patreon. And if you'd like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show rolling, uh, please visit patreon.com slash so much pingle. That's all one word. And before I go... I want to remind everyone that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at SoMuchPingle.com. And hey, you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group uh, to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And along with all of that, you can also contact me directly at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better. 